You're welcome, Neil. This is hell. And this week's show comes with a warning that at any moment I may have a really intense coughing attack. You are listening to the best radio show nobody's heard. This is hell. This week's live four-hour show is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now and podcast in its entirety. Shortly after it, this is hell.com, as well as broadcast in an abbreviated one-hour version on Chicago Southside on Lumpen Radio, and Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, also on Sunday mornings. During this week's Hell, we'll reveal that Donald Trump does have a plan to address climate change. It's just that you are not going to like his plan. Our correspondent in Budapest will tell us what's been happening over the holidays in Hungary. And nothing says holidays quite like Hungary's new slave law. We'll discuss exactly how white the news is. Spoiler alert. It's really, 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 really white. Then we'll do something the white news media refuses to do, actually talk to a person who is currently a sex worker about prostitution and sex workers' rights. Finally, we'll wrap up this week's hell with a discussion about an international campaign against climate change that's coming to the U.S. real soon. And I'll explain our stupid show for the uninitiated, our newest listeners in our audience, and remind returning listeners that this whole Megillah, what this whole Megillah is all about, shout out to all of our Yiddish-speaking listeners. Our first guest this week is senior and founding editor of N Plus One magazine, Marco Roth, who is the lead writer of an article by N Plus One's editors, The Best of a Bad Situation. This is what extinction feels like from the inside. Turns out the Trump administration is not in climate change denial, and after you learn what the Trump plan is on climate change, you just may wish they still weren't now because the Trump plan is determining who lives and who dies in the 20th century, 21st century. Yep, they know climate change is happening and that it's happening due to human activity. But don't let that make you think the Republican Party is going to suddenly come up with a way to get our economy off fossil fuels. Solar panels and wind turbines? Guess again. Instead, Republicans will be building more walls and prohibiting human mu- movement despite that movement being forced by extreme weather events, the kind of extreme weather events the right has been denying, were linked to climate change for decades. Marco's article appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus plus One. Find all of the writing at nplusonemag.com. We'll start this week's second hour of This Is Hell with our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, 
who is an African-American from Sacramento, California, who has lived in Budapest since 1992, mostly by chance, and has been giving his non-expert opinion of what is happening in Hungary since, since, I don't know, 2000. We got to dig up our first conversation with Todd because I remember being surprised after like his third appearance to find out he was African-American. This time, Todd is going to tell us about the most recent events in Hungary under the far-right-wing political party Fidesz of far-right-wing Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Over the holidays, not only did Orban shut down the George Soros-funded Central European University, but they also instituted a new law that's being called a slave law, which is pissing off all Hungarian workers from the far left to the far right. Yes, like the French Yellow Vest movement, Hungary is witnessing its own protests against neoliberalism, although they vary. Following Todd in our second hour, we'll talk with award-winning newspaper reporter Aaron Miguel Cantu, who has an article in the new issue of The Baffler titled, The Whitest News You Know, The False Promise of a Press for Everybody. Despite decades of promises by the news media industry of greater diversity, not only in the newsroom, but within the news and editorial content of their outlets, those promises have gone nowhere. Without women, people of color, and more members of the LGBTQ community contributing, our journalism here in the United States has remained stark white, reporting almost exclusively on white interests. Anne has written for national and regional publications and contributed to the book, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. You can find Aaron's article at thebaffler.com. We'll start our third hour by speaking with sex worker Molly Smith, co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Unbelie- unbelievably, when prostitution is discussed, that discussion rarely includes actual working prostitutes. Sure, they'll have former sex workers who contend with sex work and those who have never done sex work, but actual, actual current working pros- prostitutes? Not so much. This silencing of the view of current sex workers leads to what is known as carceral feminism, that is, enforcing feminism through policing, arrests, detention, and potentially deportation. Problem with carceral feminism is the police are the greatest security threat to sex workers. We'll learn about the fight for sex worker safety and improved economic conditions when we hear from Molly, who is an activist with the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement, known as SWARM, Find out more about Swarm by visiting swarmcollective.org. Molly is also involved with Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity based in Edinburgh, which is working to decriminalize sex work in Scotland. Follow Molly on Twitter at PostaChips, where she describes herself as a tired prostitute, communist, and feminist. After we read your responses to this week's question from hell, and I'll be sharing the question from hell with you in a moment, We'll give a live report from the UK on the new Extinction Rebellion movement that's going global from activist and co-founder of the movement, Claire Farrell. We may be on the verge of a new stage in fighting climate change with this new movement that uses nonviolence and mass arrest to raise awareness of just how critical our age is and possibly avoiding the absolute worst effects of abrupt climate change, which are quickly approaching. But how is this group and their strategy any different? Why is it gaining such support and worldwide momentum? We'll find out when we discuss the movement with Claire, who recently posted the uh, Guardian article, BBC has a key role in tackling the climate emergency. Find out more about Extinction Rebellion at rebellion.earth or go to hashtag Extinction Rebellion. All that stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, 
We'll tell you what we've been doing on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We have a very special prize for this week's winner. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe, actually, more than definitely, we'll get to twist off knowledge and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, Magilla is a Yiddish term? Yeah. Oh, damn, I thought Hanna-Barbera came up with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're hilarious. Did you know that that gorilla was actually anti-Semitic? Happens throughout the entire episode. <laughs> Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is rosemary. According to the article, nine all-natural herbal holiday hangover remedies, which last month uh, at Organic Authority, which was posted last month at OrganicAuthority.com, rosemary is a natural stimulant and is, is it? And is great for relieving feelings of sadness. Or sorry, tiredness. I don't know why I added that myself. For a hangover-related stomach upset, rosemary could be used in the bath or inhaled in oil form. Really? Try Sebastian Pohl, Puka Herbs co-founder and... Er- and This sentence is a little strange here. I know, I know. Uh, and Master Herbsmith's hangover recipe have contained rosemary... I sound like I'm having a stroke on the air reading this. I should have read this one before. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh... Somehow this sentence implies me to say that uh, there is a hangover recipe called Forgive Me For I Have Sinned. To make Forgive Me For I Have Sinned, take two sprigs of rosemary, add freshly boiled water, let steep for 15 minutes, strain, and put in a dash of Angostura bitters and honey to taste, as well as a sprinkle of turmeric per cup. That makes this week's hangover cure, reading the hangover cure script beforehand, (laughs) and rosemary, or the rosemary turmeric bitters tea known as Forgive Me For I Have Sinned. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And that's pretty much what we do here on This Is Hell. Offer airtime to dissenting points of view that are not being mentioned in the mainstream corporate establishment media, both commercial and public. Because even public media has been forced to be dependent upon corporate foundations, including those that profit from wars and climate change. So who can blame them for not wanting to cover dissenting points of view or air dissenting voices. Of course, they'll tell you, as an NPR programming executive told me once, that they have a firewall between their editorial and sponsorship departments. But, as I explained to that same executive, conflict of interest is as much a matter of perception as it is a matter of reality. If you're taking money from foundations supported by big big oil, don't be surprised when the audience sees that as selling out to big oil. And don't be shocked clutching your pearls when someone suggests that support from big fossil fuel is the reason there is any perceived lack of coverage at your media outlet of the harm done by fossil fuels and how it has contributed to our pending abrupt climate change that will be devastating to millions, if not tens of millions of people, or hundreds of millions of people for that matter. I hate at the end of PBS shows when they say it's been sponsored by viewers like you because you never hear them say, by the Ford Foundation, which has been supporting American imperial plans and subjugation of the developing world for capitalist profits for generations. And you definitely never hear that at the end of Democracy Now! But this is hell doesn't have these kinds of conflicts of interest. Conflicts of interest the news media industry innocuously calls revenue streams. Of course, those streams are damned with dependence upon corporations which limit the flow into mere trickles of truth. 
that never dare question the powers controlling the spigot. No, this is hell. Doesn't have the problem of actually trying to earn corporate money. Our show is completely 100% supported by our listening audience. That doesn't mean we're free of bias. Nobody is. But our biases aren't based on what corporations are making us say, corporations that are often the reason for our wars, famines, and climate change. Our biases are based on whatever beliefs we have. Through embracing the idea of objectivity, although being fully cognizant that nothing can be perfectly objective, that we are all subject to our own subjectivity, and embracing concepts like fairness, despite being fully aware that I'm far from being any sort of scales of justice, and an acceptance that I'm in every way an agnostic and that I know nothing is known or can be known, I have hoped to undermine whatever bias I have, but I know that I can't. Sure, you can call that indecisiveness or refusal to make some sort of commitment to a cause. Hell, I've been going out with the same woman for 31 completely unmarried years and living with her for 28, so clearly completely full commitment. That ain't my strong suit. And what is expected of interviewers is argumentative, contradictory, hot takes taking one of two sides of an issue and trying to win a debate. Because the media thinks the audience wants winners above everything else. Instead, as I am undecided and still trying to learn, I ask questions of experts who know far better than I do. I hope to learn with you about the world around us instead of just argue about it and see who can land a real zinger. I openly admit my ignorance and that anyone listening right now is likely to be far smarter than I am rather than pretend I'm some authoritative thinker on anything, as so many talking heads do. And I'm not the authority that you should cite after listening to our show. Our guests are. We don't interview people who have become professional commentators or analysts or communication strategists. Sure, we sometimes talk with people in the media, but not only people in the media. Watch CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News any day of the week and see how many of their own employees they interview. Talk about an echo chamber. It's like an echo chamber inside of an echo chamber inside of another echo chamber. We also don't host those from big business or big politics who have by their very nature a built-in motivation to never be completely honest. Being honest would never get them profits or votes because neither does under capitalism. But we're not trying to do either. This all started because back in the late 1990s, places like WNUR were the rare place where you could actually air differing points of view. In fact, that was part of the charter. Give the audience something they cannot otherwise get anywhere on the radio dial. But now there's podcasting, which we've been doing since September 15th, 2001, even before podcasting started. And the Internet's airwaves, if you will, are not so completely owned by huge corporations that it forces a very few dissenting voices to languish at the edge of the spectrum where they're so hard to find. Today you can get podcasts and live streams like ours that circumvent corporate control of the airwaves. By the way, the airwaves that are still, by law, owned by the public. And if you're wondering why it doesn't feel like you're, you own the airwaves, well, that's what ownership feels like under neoliberalism. Far too often, however, this freedom and independence to finally chan- challenge those who have controlled far too many of our decisions for far too long, unfairly tilting the broadcasting playing field and public information to their advantage. Too often, that opportunity is wasted by shows that do nothing but mimic the corporate media industry in pursuit of money and fame. 
I mean, sure, I'd like money. I need money to survive. And I'm barely surviving. But I don't want fame. Fame sucks. I have very little fame. And what little I have, like I said, it sucks. It's little wonder, then, that we make so little money. And so few people know about this show, right? No, we'll never be the media's darlings, and we don't want to be. But this is not the media. This is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what are you public publicly apologizing for in 2019? What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This, week, this week's winner gets one of a limited number of lino-cut 2019 calendars by our Puerto Rico correspondent, Dave Buchan. And you can see what it looks like by going to DaveBuchan, B-U-C-H-E-N, dot WordPress dot com. Again, the question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Leave your responses now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. If you want to hear my in- my apology in its entirety, you are going to have to go to patreon.com slash this is hell coming up on this week's this is hell trump has a climate change plan and it's even scarier than trump not having a climate change plan hungary's new slave law may be starting a revolution the news media is way more white than you think it is unless you're not white in which case you probably already realize just how white the news is prostitutes are revolting for sex worker rights and they've been doing it for a lot longer than you think there's a potentially new global challenge to climate change we'll have rotten history listener feedback what alex has been up to on social media what we've been doing on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell of course the question from hell we'll also want to thank some uh, listeners for supporting this is hell for sharing the show online we'll get to twist off knowledge for the first time in over a year and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of this is hell I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The Trump administration has been repeatedly criticized for not having a plan to address climate change and of being in denial of any pending doom extreme weather will bring. But as our first guest argues, Trump is not in denial and does have a plan. And it's a very, very, very scary plan. Here to explain, senior and founding editor of N Plus Mag- One magazine, Marco Roth, is the lead writer of an article by N Plus One's editors, The Best of a Bad Situation. This is what extinction feels like from the inside, which appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus One. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marco. Thanks, Chuck. You can find all of the writing of N Plus One at N plus one mag.com that's all spelled out n-p-l-u-s-o-n-e-m-a-g you write 10 or 15 years ago it was possible to think of the polar bear and the white rhinoceros as martyrs dying off to shame us into better harmony with the natural world not ruined archaic torsos but videos of extinct creatures would say you must change your life i'm going to continue that quote in a little bit but why do you think shaming us into fighting climate change, why didn't that work? That's a great question. Uh, boy, that, that's a that's a perfect lead question. Um, you know, there there was a there was a feeling that that uh, you know we were we were in a kind of liberal mode of uh, educating the public into understanding climate change 
and understanding what was happening to us. And so all of the the, the bag of tricks that kind of worked uh, in the 70s uh, for the ecological movement were pulled out. So you had, you know, you had animal videos. Um, <laughs> you had great reporting. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert in the, in the New Yorker, uh, who I read about later in the article. But that those the broadcast for that somehow didn't reach the people that it was supposed to reach, uh, <laughs> which were the people in, uh, um, in oil companies and, and elsewhere who had another plan. And I think, as you point out in your in your intro, uh, a lot of us still would like to believe that the problem with climate change is ignorance that that uh, that there's denial, that there's lack of knowledge. That, but but I think we've we've reached a point now where it's clear that that when you have willed ignorance, which is what this is uh, from the administration and from other sources, uh, willed ignorance. There's nothing you can do. So you know you can show a you know you could show a video of a refugee of a polar bear. <laughs> that's not gonna that's not gonna that's not gonna move someone who is who is determined so hard not to see. Uh, or not to, or or not to believe that that's a problem. You write that a dark glimmer of progressive thinking, the bargaining phrase phase, as it were, uh, the was discernible in the Kyoto Protocol and at the Paris Conference, where the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, Tuvalu uh, Tuvalu's call to impose a strict not to be exceeded target of a 1.5 degree Celsius rise in global temperature, the minimum required to save his people from a homeless future in a world hostile to refugees and immigrants, was dismissed in favor of pragmatic mitigating maneuvers intended to induce the cooperation of holdout nations such as the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Now, the five stages of denial are anger, bargaining, depression, and then you also have acceptance. Have we moved on from bargaining to depression, or have we even gone further into acceptance of climate change? And to what extent can acceptance actually lead to finally fighting against climate change? It's interesting that you that you bring up the the five stages of grief in that in that way, uh, because I have a I have an ongoing now we're, now we're getting into uh, both individual and, and uh, mass uh, psychology. Uh, I always felt like the, the five stages of grief were—they're um, not actually stages; that they're that they're like that they're always present. Um, so the, the notion that you move, you know, through these um, as as like phases in history is itself a kind of progressive thinking. <laughs> uh, whereas, in fact, these stages are there at every moment in the grieving process. So, um, have we moved into the? You know, I, I think there there's a. We may have shuttled back into, uh, from the, the Republican side, the denial stage, um, and certainly from uh, the side of people who understand what's happening to the earth, the anger stage. Um, I, I mean, I, I could actually be in favor of more anger. Um, <laughs> more anger rather than acceptance, because there are certain things to, to, to assume um, that, that this is a, a grieving process is to assume that, that, that we really can't do anything about it. Uh, and that moment of acceptance, I think, has yet to come and would be very dangerous politically uh, if, if we thought we were in the acceptance phase. Uh, it's funny, in the, also in the, in the passage that you just read, it made me realize, first of all, that Tuvalu uh, needs to be, uh, you know, it, it comes at you in the sentence uh, when you read it aloud uh, more, than I, more than I expected when I wrote it. Um, the it's nice to see Tuvalu there. It's a small island in the Pacific, but they, you know, their their prime minister was like, if you don't stick to a strict uh, 1.5 uh, Celsius uh, temperature limit, we don't exist, and we 
uh, will all become refugees. And there was even a moment where they, they threatened to uh, immediately emigrate to, uh, to Europe, uh, which scared the Europeans because nobody wants uh, refugees. Uh, that, however, uh, that didn't work. But I think what we've seen with uh, climate change negotiations, uh, you know, carbon limit negotiations, this is also happening uh, in the background of the, the Gilets Jaunes protest movement in France, uh, that you know, these, these small steps occasion these huge reactions. And this is also the same we saw this with the healthcare law in the United States, where like you know, there was there was a preemptive attempt to negotiate with the you know with people with the idea that we could just gradually you know ease ourselves into carbon reduction or ease ourselves into uh, having a, a better healthcare system that you know we wouldn't antagonize the insurance companies, we wouldn't antagonize the oil companies, we would give them time to you know maybe like switch over into uh, renewable energy sources. I mean, Exxon has billions of dollars. Why don't they invest in uh, alternative energy? They would be very well positioned to do so. That's not their model. Uh, and so even the smallest uh, attempts at amelioration have been met with these massive uh, pushbacks that, that you would expect, you know, if uh, if you were proposing the most radical solution. So why not actually at this point think about the most radical solutions to climate change, which would be completely decoupling the economy from carbon-based uh, fuels and carbon-based energy sources. You write that whatever they may say or tweet, the Trump administration is not in denial about climate change. In fact, it has the perverse distinction of being the first U.S. administration to address it head on. How do you right. see the Trump administration not being in denial about climate change and about addressing it head on? Well, I think this is the uh, this is the counterintuitive move that that we are asking readers of this essay to to make, right? Which is to that you know, as I said at the beginning, this thought was that you could educate people and that there was that there was a um, you know that, that this is this is a distinguished tradition um, in thinking about. Uh, evil and wrong, uh, going back to Aristotle, which all evil is only ignorance. People only do things that are bad out of a lack of knowledge. Um, that, I think, turns out not to be true. Um, and I think that the, what, ha- what, what, the, um, what the Trump administration has shown us is that, I mean, these are people who, who, believe, who I think on a deep level, on an in, you know, I mean, you know I'm not talking about Trump himself. I have no idea what is in that person's mind. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. Um, but the people that he surrounded himself with, so in, in this case, I don't even think this is a Trump problem. This is a Republican Party problem. Uh, you know, the, the Pruitts, the, the Zinks, the, you know, the, the, those, that, that cast of characters that we know. Um, they understand that climate change is happening. They understand uh, something of the, you know, they're aware that there, you know, that there are more storms, that the that the average temperatures are going up. That the, you know, they may not have a great nuanced understanding of feedback loops um, in the way that, that the science has shown. You know, it's possible that these things can in fact accelerate very quickly. That we're not just like steady. You know, we're not slowly increasing carbon levels. Like carbon, you know, begets carbon. The, you know, the ice sheets melt. This is this is crazy. You know, they're, so they're they're they're. The timeline that, that we're being given, even you know, is, is slightly more alarming than people are aware of. But they, their feeling is, oh, this is like an investment opportunity for us. And you know, if somebody was like, hey, you know, there's going to be dramatically fewer resources, but you can control more of them. Uh, their their understanding of this is like, oh yeah, like we could win this. We could game plan for how to, you know, I want my family to survive. 
but I don't care about anybody else's family, so I'm just going to plan things so my family survives and not your family, and I don't, you know, who cares about the refugees? Um, we want to win the future. If, even if that future is like a scorched earth future, they're, they're trained to understand that they need to be in the best position. In, you know, they, they, will, they will be the last person standing with their family or you know, in a bunker, you know, on a hill. <laughs> it's, it's the survivalist uh, uh, response to climate change. So I think what we, rather than calling it climate change denial, I mean, we could even call it climate change survivalism. Um, and that, that expresses more clearly the attitude of the administration, which is basically, we can't do anything to stop this except that, so, so at this point, we have to make sure that, that we are in a position where we're not going to die. And, and that we is very, and we is not America, the we is not the, you know, a lot of people, the we is, the, we is the, the, you know, the Trump family mafia state model. And this is also true in Russia, where you have a mafia state, anywhere where you have a, a, a narrow oligarchic state, it's very difficult to fight climate change because the, the, the people in charge are just like, hey, like we can move somewhere, you know, we could up sticks to Canada. And if you see where, uh, I mean, this is, it, you know, it's interesting that the Gulf nations um, are very smart in, in how they've been buying land uh, outside the Gulf states um, <laughs> and what they're planning to do with it. And, the, you know, because they also know that, the, you know, Qatar and, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, these, these, are, these are states that are not going to be habitable in, uh, you know, 30 to 40 years. So why do you think that individuals' survivalist reaction to climate change why do you think that proved so popular, popular enough to uh, for Trump to win the Electoral College? Why do you think that uh, proves uh, ends up being more popular than any kind of collective response we can make so more people would survive the worst aspects of abrupt climate change? Yeah, I think, well, it, it's not as though the election was, was presented as a moratorium on, on uh, or a referendum on responses to climate. Uh, and as we know, I mean, the... The Democratic Party has been very shy about running on this issue um, until recently. So for voters, it's not, you know, I think it, it's, it's not something that people really vote on consciously. Um, but the, you know, you're kind of asking, what is the appeal? <laughs> what is the appeal of, of, uh, of, of Trump in certain ways? Which is, and, and it is the offer, and I, and I think, you know, we saw that we, we can see this in various other forms, like with the economy, where it's where it's a zero sum uh, uh, thing, where it's like you are in direct competition. Um, direct competition is nasty. You will have to, uh, you know, if somebody's coming into the country, they're going to take your job, even if that's not true. <laughs> if somebody is, uh, you know, so there, so so the attitude down the line is is one of the refusal of collectivity, um, and and there's always a sense of you know. You can make it as a as a solo individual, and I think you know we're, we're also like culturally prepped for this um, in so many ways. Uh, the popularity of shows like The Walking Dead, um, these kind of these these apocalyptic scenarios, which is always about you know the, the um, you know, reality shows like Naked and Afraid. Like we, there's there's this weird moment in the culture where it's like uh, people are being socialized into into actually into being decivilized and thinking that they can you know somehow make it on their own as long as they uh, you know work out in the right way get enough guns and canned food and this you know this this goes deep in the american unconscious the frontier ethos but in this case is you know it it becomes very it's hard to uh, you know people forget that the um 
the the rhetoric of the frontier was also about uh, conquering and using nature. That nature is not going to be available anymore to be conquered or used. Like that, there will not be resources out there in the wilderness. This is not a wilderness kind of issue. This is a this is a survival of the planet issue. Um, so it really does require. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's easier for people who live in cities, strangely, um, to have a sense of what collective action is. Um, or would look like, or it's, e- or it's easier for people who also live in uh, in you know, communities that have a relationship to, um, to ecological cycles, uh, a strong relationship to ecological cycles, to understand how they could act collectively. But you know, it, it gets there's so much mist around. You know, how do I get my energy to my house? You know, I mean, most people don't even know that, right? So they, would they would they know where their local power plant is? Would they know what's behind the local power plant? Would, and, and if they could understand how easily the switch to uh, alternative energy could be could be done, they might you know they might in fact even be on board with a collective solution. So, in the face of climate change, do we empathize with zombies that have no idea of what's taking place around them? And, and if we do, what does that reveal to, to you about us and the way that we do see and react to and respond to climate change? Yeah, the quite well. Right, there's always there's always this question about who are the zombies, and I think um, <laughs> everybody has, has different answers to this. I mean, you know, I, my 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 answer in the essay is that the zombies are are actually us, but they're they're the displaced us. So it, it's it's one more way of allowing uh, individuals to think like, oh, I'm not responsible for for this human catastrophe that's unfolding. It's these other humans that are responsible. I mean, you know, we're kind of, we're all responsible. Um, so uh, we do have to empathize. Uh, and, and there is, the, so I'm not saying that uh, that education is impossible on this topic, um, that, uh, you know, we shouldn't assume people learn more, but we should assume that uh, there is a strong broadcast from the Republican Party, uh, those with interest in the Republican Party, particularly the oil industry, um, and and you know, and also like the Koch brothers with their plastics and paper interest, in obscuring the problem just to the point where they can like get enough profits and money uh, hoarded away so that they can save themselves. So if you're not in the one percent category. Um, Anybody not in the one percent category needs to come up <laughs> with a collective solution to climate change, and and that and that does have to happen um, through education. Uh, part of the point of this essay, though, was to was to um, deal with the sense that there are, there are people who already know, and then how do they feel with you know what is it like going through the day <laughs> with the knowledge that that that, that uh, even everything that you know is not helping right now. Um, and and to and to point you know to say it's probably not helping because you're not going to you're not going to educate the one percent on this. <laughs> um, the one percent has decided what they want to do uh, about it. And you know again you know there there are some there are some progressive billionaires out there who who would actually like to live in a world <laughs> that uh, that is not a uh, a warmed you know husk. And then the other thing is it's very hard to imagine what the you know you can. You know, I, I, I personally, I mean, I've been, I've been writing about this for a while, and every time I'm like, what would the world look like, uh, you know, with um, not just sea level rise, but complete deforestation, um, with desertification? It's, it becomes, 
you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in really, like, if you can imagine it, it's probably going to be worse than what you can imagine um, at the end stage. So I keep running up against this. And I think, well, you know, who wants to say, you know, is my imagination really the, the limit on, uh, on the worst that could happen? And I have to say, as a human being, no, because human, human, the failure of human imagination is part of what has brought us into this, uh, you know, edge of the cliff position that we're in. You also write that we need to ditch the patriarchal uh, models of wealth and status reproduction that have been constitutive of uh, nearly all expansionist, war-making, and resource-depleting societies of the past 10,000 years. Do we have to, is it necessary for (laughs) us to end patriarchy in order to end climate change? Because I'm not too sure which one we're going to be better at changing. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, in some ways, in some ways, it, one will be the effect of the other. <laughs> I mean, well, actually, I mean, I could imagine an end to patriarchy that would not solve an end to climate change, um, uh, or that would not really ameliorate climate change. The other thing is, like, we're not going to end climate change. We're just going to, you know, we're, we're going to put the brakes on something that will, you know, if, if we're lucky, we're going to end up in a, a you know, back in, into a 300-year cycle of carbon reduction that will mitigate the... the 300-year cycle of carbon accumulation that we've been in, you know, shooting up since uh, since the advent of the steam engine. Um, what what does have to what would have to happen though is is that there there would have to be. I mean, it it, it is very deeply wired into human uh, patriarchal societies that that one way to deal with conditions of stress uh, in. And, and scarcity in the culture is to go out and plunder and conquer other cultures. Um, that's the model that would no longer function under climate change. Although that's the one that we that we're starting to kind of see uh, very scarily. Um, you know, so far it's been a defensive response. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think one one has to see the the immigration paranoia in this country as an as an aspect of fear of climate change. This is certainly true. Um, Elsewhere in the world, in Hungary, uh, which I believe you'll be talking about later, um, and uh, and in Burma, where you have again the the, the rise of uh, of ethnic distinctions that are you know if you have a, if, if there's a small ethnic minority that is uh, in, in a um, vulnerable position uh, as as resources across the board dwindle, that ethnic minority is going to be in trouble. Um, so that's what would have to happen. I mean, you know, again, we're in the position of, you, it's, it's, we're not, like, nobody's going nobody's gonna to fight their way out of this problem. There, there are no more worlds left to conquer. We're not going to go to Mars, you know. <laughs> and, even, and even if we did go to Mars, like, wouldn't we, like, wouldn't we still want Earth and Mars? Um, so all of the kind of, the, the zero-sum thinking um, that is part of, that, 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 we, that we use, you know, that, that helped uh, build a you know great American empire by by taking stuff away from other people, that's not going to work. So so that's really what that's really the challenge, uh, and that's what's behind that that patriarchy sense. And you mentioned uh, how the immigration debate is also steeped in climate change. How much is the immigration debate today, in your opinion, the result of climate change? If it is. Would explain to you why so rarely we hear climate change mentioned in the debate over immigration and borders. Yeah, I think that climate change and part of the part of the, what the article 
argues is that um, you know, there's this counterintuitive move that you have to accept that, that denial is not denial out of ignorance. Denial is denial when you know something is happening and you don't want to see it. So everybody knows a little bit about climate change. Uh, it has created an atmosphere of pervasive anxiety. It's created an atmosphere of pervasive scarcity. So that we, we already feel that, there, that we live in this atmosphere of scarcity. Um, and, and that, that everything is under threat. And so, in, so with, that, with this undercurrent of anxiety about a, a real global problem, you also have, you know, it, it allows other anxieties that are, that are near to the surface to, to, be, to be played upon. And so immigration, the sense that, you know, it, it, of, elsewhere in the world, I mean, this is all, you know, especially, this is, it's more the case in Europe where um, the Europeans are freaking out about uh, Refugees coming over from uh, from Africa and the Middle East, um, but the U.S. has now borrowed its, its immigration politics from the European right wing, and I mean the, the notion that that uh, somehow you know there isn't. Like, I mean, I'm always I'm always amused when I talk to uh, you know I have, a, I have a good friend in Denmark, and he's like, "Aren't you worried about all these immigrants coming in because there's there's not enough land?" And you're like, "Okay, that's true in Denmark, but you know." Nobody lives in South Dakota. Nobody lives in Montana. Nobody. Lives. <laughs> America is full of these empty states, um, and and you know we with the right planning, you know, imagine if if somebody uh, planned an ecological community that was running, uh, you know, off uh, off uh, renewable energy sources. You could build a city in any of these places that could house, uh, you know, millions of people, and uh, and it wouldn't be a problem. Um, so yes, I think the Ameri but the the. Uh, the response, the the thing that that seems to be triggering everyone in in the U.S. about is this idea that somehow we are also uh, facing a, a scarcity crisis, you know, a scarcity of land, a scarcity of the labor market, uh, and these and these crises are all manufactured. Um, but the climate change anxiety, I think, makes it easier for politicians like like Trump and Steve King to demagogue on immigration issues. You're right, we are everyday climate deniers the way we are everyday death deniers. Are we in the same kind of denial about climate change as we are about death? Has any unwillingness to come to terms with our own mortality also led to us not coming to terms with climate change, that there's just something inherent about the human spirit that we just don't want to think about death, and that's what leads oh, us oh, to... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a version of the boomer problem, um, where, you know, the, 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 the sense of, like, we know we're going to die, um, and, the, you know, the boomers being the great, you know, they're like, yeah, but, like, I'm, you know, I'm just hitting the prime of life in 60, you know, at 65, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> um, I'm going to, and, and I'm going to, spend my resources trying to live forever in exactly the way that I've lived before. Uh, and that's, that's a form of death denial, which, you know, like, on some level, you know, you're going to, these people still know they're going to die. Um, they just, they're just not ready to understand what dying is like. Um, and, and, and to, and to come to terms with death as an aspect of life. So I think what, what we've come, what, what climate change has shown us or should show us is that our civilization, this, this carbon-based, um, massively exploitative, um, you know, rapacious thing that we've been living in, you know, kind of, you know, in, in a grand sweep, really, when one can go back to, uh, to the steam engine here, um, that civilization is ending. And, and we know that that civilization is ending, even if we don't admit it. The question is, what civilization are we preparing 
And to accept one's death in a certain way would also mean to to uh, prepare those that come after us to have a good life, right? And to say, you know, I may not have had the opportunity for these things in my life, so but but the next generation will have that opportunity. Um, you know, <laughs> like they, they, or in this case, I would like the next generation, my children's generation, to be able to breathe. <laughs> I would like them to be able to go swimming. I would, like, you know, think basic things. <laughs> um, you know, without getting uh, without getting their their skins burned off by an acid by by an acidified ocean or stung to death by jellyfish. I mean, you know, or like have access to fresh water. We're 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 now back to very basic things, but that's the kind of civilization that we would have to prepare. Um, and so to accept climate change is to accept that the civilization that we're in is dying and, and needs to die um, and will die. Uh, and that, that death can be angry and chaotic and you know, nasty and full of war. And, and, you know, I mean, it can, it could be a really, um, you know, in, in the end, the ends of civilizations are not pretty. Uh, usually, but we do have this opportunity uh, as a species to create the possibility of another civilization um, that would that would take over from the carbon-based uh, civilization that has been ruling. You know, this, you know, that's been pretty much the paradigm for for three hundred years. You write about LED bulbs. One of the f- you write one of the few successful attempts to reduce carbon emissions in the United States in the twenty first century. Say a bright spot. <laughs> no, I was not going to. Resulted okay. in the slow replacement of heat. Gen- though I do love puns. Heat generating yellow incandescent light bulbs with cold white blue light emitting diodes. But the back of envelope math suggests that even if every incandescent bulb used in the United States for residential and commercial applications were replaced by its diode equivalent, the likely total differential would be a percentage point of our total energy use. How much do token actions and policies like this distract us from addressing climate change? Or do they actually help us address climate change because they allow for or make us more tolerant of government and industry intrusions in our life that, uh, you know, affect a kind of change in our lifestyles that could help us fight climate change? Yeah, and that's a, that's another great question that I don't, I don't have hard and fast answers to. I think we've certainly seen that there's a, that there's an ambivalence in any reformist type initiative um this you know with carbon cap and trade this idea that you know oh like poorer nations will trade their carbon credits to richer nations so the richer nations can keep uh, polluting and these poorer nations will have to come up with <laughs> they'll have to do something else uh you know they'll have to draw their water from the well by hand just the way they did you know thousands of years there's a little condescension in that and as we've seen also like with the um with things like uh, uh attempts to do regressive uh, gas taxes in France that really you know that kind of move uh really backfires when you um say we're going to reduce your quality of life uh to the middle and lower classes uh in order to uh save the earth and they look around and they're like yeah but you're still uh, driving you know your <laughs> your gas guzzling car and you can afford to uh to pay uh the extra tax and and uh, this is not a fair exchange like why do i have to bear the burden of uh saving the earth or those polar bears that you like to talk about uh, fuck you i'm going to go pardon me i got to say that on the air i knew it was live radio um i'm going to uh, protest against the tax and and your government and then there's going to and the polar bears can go to hell um or you know in this case the planet can go to hell 
so the light bulb thing is an interesting. The light bulb thing was it was the comic moment in the essay. I was like it was important. To, it was important to have a little bit of humor in these essays. Uh, and and we we were sitting around kvetching about light bulbs for a long time. And this this was an Obama era uh, initiative to. Um, to reduce uh, carbon emissions through, uh, you know, the the energy that's expended in um, both in like lighting your lighting your apartments and streets and all these things, but it turns out that it's really only about five uh, percent of total U.S. energy use uh, lighting. So again, this is an issue where like there was a huge amount of uh, political capital uh, expended um, to change a very minor thing. And the result of that is is a real reduction in in quality of life that's noticeable. And and if you're you know if you um, uh, spend time in institutions that are forced to use you know LED bulbs like schools, <laughs> hospitals, those places are 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 these you know the lighting is like the lighting of the of the apocalypse. I mean it's so dead. It's so this is also of course the light that comes from our computer screens. Um, we're bathed in this cool light all the time. It's actually not. It, it's uh, it's been shown. Um, studies have been done that shows that it like, can increase stress levels. It doesn't. You know, it, you're, you can't really sleep by it. You also can't read text by it, um, which is a, which is something that that hasn't been uh, I think adequately uh, discussed. So this you had you, this this is a classic example of like uh, top down government thing that um, that that uh, pleases both sides of the. Uh, of the government doesn't work narrative, because <laughs> um, the Republicans, okay, you know, if, if you were a climate change denier or if you were a big government hater, you would say, I don't want these. You know, why is the government intruding into my life with these light bulbs? Um, and uh, or if you, you know, and, and and you would be right in a certain sense, um, because again, it's only five percent of total U.S. energy. It's not a lot. You know, if everybody switched over to these things, it's a very minor thing. Um, so, nevertheless, there, there's you know. There, Part of the dominant model of, of, of ecology that, that 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 we learned, I think, growing up, um, you know, in in the U.S. in the seventies, and probably, is that is that ecology somehow has to be joyless? Like you're 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 conserving, you're uh, you're not uh, you know you're sacrificing, um, and so the the light bulb uh, thing plays into the. The Puritan Protestant ethic that that, that that makes people think, oh, yeah, like you know, unless it's inconvenient, we're not really saving the earth. But the fact is <laughs> that that it's inconvenient, and you're not saving the earth really anyway. Um, so I, I think government, as it's planning these interventions, should understand that that they're that they're um, they don't really need to impose uh, an ascetic tax on people. And uh, there's a way, there's a kind of way to, to joyfully save the earth. Uh, and those are the ways that we should be looking at. Do we currently have the resources to save ourselves from the worst aspects of climate change? And is that window of opportunity closing that we now have the resources, but we may not have those resources for long? Uh, well, I'm not an expert on this. I'm, I'm just a writer and an editor and a researcher. Um, but what I have read, uh, I think the, uh, the Robert Pollan essay in the New Left Review uh, that I cite in the piece does make a very strong case that uh, we do have right now the available alternative energy um, technologies, um, and it's a question of scaling them. And the scale, uh, you know, for a while, solar was looking very good. Um, 
and it was and it was very competitive. It was of course undermined by Trump's tariffs um, because there were, there were solar companies that were cooperating between the U.S. and China and Europe. Those cooperations may now be at risk. Uh, so so the so it was. It seemed like you know we were going to get to the point where um, cheap solar was a real thing, um, hydroelectric power is a real thing. Um, probably, uh, I mean, Pollan argues that we would still need to use nuclear energy, which I know makes people very nervous. Um, but uh, so if you, I mean, if you take the the solar, wind, uh, hydro, and nuclear uh, quartet, uh, it seems yes, we actually have very much uh, the resources available to switch uh, away from carbon fuels. Um, and his model suggests that you could do this um, by taking, um, I forget what the, it's a, it's, a, it's a fraction of global GDP that amounts to like about a trillion dollars a year um, and invest it. Um, so this, you know, some, some organization would have to run this, probably the UN. Um, it would basically collect a global GDP tax and put all of that money into uh, switching over you know, switching the grid, basically, um, and he says that that by uh, by, by mid-century uh, that would put um, uh, that would put us on track uh, to have a full, uh, a fully uh, non-carbon-based uh, economy. Um, I hope that's true. I hope he's right. Uh, Bob has been on our show in the past. Bob Pollan, you also cite a couple of other past guests on our show, Elizabeth Colbert and Kate Aronoff. So our listeners who are familiar with their work, they can find in your writing as well. If information can't fight climate change, what can? Hmm. Am I, well... Am I saying that information can't fight climate change? I think information alone is never the answer. I think if I if I suggested that that that, that any attempt to inform uh, the public is useless, I I, I take that back. Um, obviously, we 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 need to inform. The question is, um, what do you uh, when you've reached a certain point where it's clear that you've been informing people at the top, uh, you know, the the policymakers, the people running for office, the people who are um, you know, then put in charge of various departments, and they're not listening. Um, at that point, um, it's no longer it's not a an information problem. It's a it's a political will problem, and the only thing that's going to help is um, making sure that these people uh, are not in office <laughs> or anywhere near power. And I think uh, the way you know I, there there are various ways to do that. I think I think. Actually, what we would need in certain ways is more information. I mean, somebody needs to uh, start running on a real profound climate change campaign. I think everyone is scared of being Al Gore. Um, But I think we need to remember that Al Gore himself didn't really run on environmental issues in 2000 because they weren't that present. So he he played down um, the stuff that became uh, the inconvenient truth when he was running for office. And so we don't, you know, we haven't really tested what a candidate running on, uh, running like on a Green New Deal uh, platform uh, would look like. I mean, you know, AOC, great as she is, she didn't run on a Green New Deal when she was running for Congress. That's something she came, she she brought in after she won. Um, It would be interesting to see what someone running on those issues would, would do, um, and what a campaign based around that would be like. And that obviously would be based on informing the voters. Um, 
and combating some of the, the nonsense that uh, that comes at them. Mostly, the issue has been downplayed electorally. I mean, in the sense that like Republicans don't, you know, I mean, Trump didn't run against, you know, he wasn't running on a platform of, hey, we're going to bust the carbon limits through the roof. Um, but nobody really challenged him either on uh, on why he wanted to increase carbon emissions. I mean, nobody, you know, it would be a simple question to ask in a debate to say, why do you want to increase carbon emissions? What's the what's the value of increasing carbon emissions? Um, because everything that, that's not uh, an amelioration at this point is an increase in carbon emissions. So I think every politician needs to answer, why do they want to increase carbon emissions? One last question for you, Marco. We have been speaking with senior and founding editor of N Plus One magazine, Marco Roth. He is the lead writer of an article by N Plus One's editors, The Best of a Bad Situation, This is What Extinction Feels Like from the Inside, which appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus One. You can find all the writing of N Plus One at nplusonemag.com. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G.com. As we do for all of our guests, Marco, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to answer, you might hate to answer, we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Does belief in the immortal soul lead to climate change? That is the question from hell. Um, yeah, there's a there's a sense in which, but my, my my wife would say, "What do you mean by soul? Let us talk about uh, our understanding of the soul." Um, I don't think it has to, but I think um, one of the kind of secret uh, the the secret sauce in in persistent climate change denial, um, even among very educated people is this belief in some kind of human immortality. Um, it, doesn't ha- it could be the immortality of the soul. Um, it, it could also be immortality through, uh, through culture, through literature. So even people who don't believe in the immortality of the soul believe that you know, their works will live on after them. Um, and climate change threatens, actually, the idea that you, know, if you want to think profoundly about uh, an apocalyptic uh, end to human civilization. Um, you cannot have your you cannot have your works. Nobody's going to be around to to read your novel. <laughs> Nobody's going to be around to read Proust or uh, um, you know. And, or, or, so you ha- you would have to start really fantasizing about things like you know, like oh maybe there'll be like intel- maybe we'll create intelligent robots and it will be like uh, the end of uh, Spielberg Kubrick AI where the intelligent robots will be non carbon uh, they they don't have to breathe oxygen and. Uh, Somewhere in their files will be uh, all of uh, world history and literature, and that's a form of collective immortality. Uh, but there, humans love to fantasize about forms of collective immortality. Um, I think, obviously, if, if you uh, if you believe that uh, after you die, your soul will, will uh, zoom off somewhere um, into another universe or another galaxy, and there's a home for it, then you might be less attached to the idea of Earth continuing. Um, but, uh, that's, you know, I, I, there within religious movements, I mean, one should say that the religious movements have actually done a very good job. <laughs> Some of them, I mean, even, even the Catholic church, bad as it is, has, has, uh, you know, I mean, Pope Francis is more progressive on climate change than, uh, than most of the, uh, leaders of the, of, uh, of nations right now. Um, 
so I can't I can't condemn. Uh, I'm not going to use this as a platform to uh, to say religion is bad. Um, but but the one thing that that if you think seriously about climate change, you have to think about the ways in which your own fantasies of immortality, whether that's immortality of the soul, uh, whether that's immortality of of, uh, of works, um, allow you to kind of put off the reckoning with what is is quite close to happening now. Um, so every day that you go through that, you're like, oh, like I just wrote a, like somebody's going to read this and somebody's going to listen to this, this uh, radio show um, in 20 years. Like, no, they might not. Like, you've got to do stuff now. <laughs> well, on that happy thought, Marco, I really appreciate you being on the show. This was this is a fantastic conversation. The article is really amazing. And as I said, you cite a lot of the past guests on our show who we've discussed climate change with, the con- economics in the past, labor in the past. So really appreciate you being on the show and great work over at N Plus One and count on us bugging you in the future to have you back on the show. Great. Thank you so much. Those were really tough questions. I, uh, I, I feel baked over the coals. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you very much. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove us wrong. This is hell, and you can prove us wrong. And if you can prove us wrong, email me at chuck at thisishell.com because I really want to be proven wrong. You can also follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Hungary's far right government introduced new legislation over the holidays, and nothing says holidays quite like the new Hungarian slave law. We'll learn what the slave law is all about and what recent widespread protests mean in Hungary when we talk to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams. This week's question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. This week's winner gets one of the limited edition of Lino Cut 2019 calendars by our Puerto Rico correspondent, Dave Buchan. These are really stunning calendars. I've been getting them for, I don't know now, maybe 15 years every year, and I buy like anywhere from 5 to 10 of them to give them out as gifts. They really are beautiful, and you can find them at davebuchan.wordpress.com. And if you want to hear my apology in its entirety... You're going to have to go to patreon.com slash this is hell. Again, the question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. And again, listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one coming up on this week's This Is Hell. I'm going to be telling you about some amazing amazing gifts the show got from our listeners over the holidays. Uh, We didn't ask for these. They were completely unsolicited, but we got a lot of really amazing gifts from our listeners, and I'll be sharing those with you later on the show. Also coming up, Hungary's new slave law may be starting a revolution. The news media is way more white than you think it is, unless you're not white, in which case you probably already realize just how white the news is. Prostitutes are revolting for sex worker rights. They've been doing it for a lot longer than you think. There's a potentially new global challenge to climate change. We'll get to rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what has been going on on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
Of course, the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We're going to get to Twist Off Knowledge this week, unbelievably, and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry, live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is hell. You think things are bad here in the States with our far-right-wing Trump administration power? Well, at least he hasn't introduced a slave law as Prime Minister Viktor Orban did in Hungary over the holidays. Here to tell us what the hell is happening in Hungary... It's Todd Williams, our correspondent in Budapest. Todd is an African-American from Sacramento, California, who has lived in Budapest, Hungary since 1992, mostly by chance. <laughs> How are you, Todd? No, no 100% by chance. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, sir. Yeah, yeah, Happy New Year to you guys as well. How's it going? Great. Uh, how was the family over the holidays? Did you have a good time with your wife and kid? Um, you know, I have to go to the in-laws in Rome. It, it sounds great because I'm always, I always say, "Oh, I'm going to Rome for Christmas," but it's in-laws. So. Yeah, it's, still, it's still the in-laws. It doesn't matter where it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going yeah, to. See, I, I'm going to Atlantis sorry. to see my in-laws. You know, it's just um, it's, you're still with your. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, but I was only there for a few days, and then I came back. I just played video games in New Year. <laughs> So let's start with George Soros' Central European University in Hungary. As the New York Times reported in early December, CEU founded in Hungary after the collapse of the Soviet Union to champion the principles of democracy and free societies announced that it was being forced from its campus in Budapest by the increasingly authoritarian government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. The closing of the university, founded by the American billionaire George Soros, came after a nearly two-year struggle with the Orban government, which has quashed dissent and consolidated control over all aspects of Hungarian life. The university will move its United States-accredited degree programs to Vienna in September. Does that describe life in Hungary to you, that Orban government has quashed dissent and consolidated control, control over all aspects of Hungarian life? You know, I, I would say he's trying to do that. In, in in a lot of ways, and so, but it okay. So it, it's connected to CEU, right? So he he got rid of uh, he changed he's changing the education system. That is true. So not just that CEU is gone. I, so first, let me say this: since you mentioned CEU, I think CEU was a political move because I think he believed that uh, CEU was producing people or you know um, graduating people who could directly challenge his power. So there, you know, there is the whole sense of, of um, Shortosh being, Shortosh being behind it and Shortosh is his enemy. So obviously who he produces or who comes out of that university is going to be his enemy. And, you know, obviously um, with connections and stuff to, to, to do anything against him. Now, whether the life, whether our life is like, you know, all totally controlled, I wouldn't say every aspect of it, but you know, there there is something to be said for that. I, I definitely would. Uh, it, so it's hard. Okay, so education is changing. Labor, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> education is changing. Labor is changing. Um, what else is there? We still have. Uh, you know, the metro is getting better. <laughs> wow! So they they actually do make the trains run on time. Who knew? They, actually, they they totally do. That is something that's true. Um, but you know that's a it's a good question what you're asking because on the one hand I can't really I don't I don't feel that I don't feel that I'm I'm 
let's say, less free or totally controlled. But at the same time, when I think about, you know, the labor laws and, and also education. So an education there is changes. For example, a couple of years ago, uh, preschools were made mandatory to start at, at three years old. So when my son went, you had to go at three. And that was the first year they'd done that. Um, there's also now they've also it's actually I read this in the article that you sent that there's also a lowering of the limit of when you have to be in school and vocational schools based on uh, a German model. You know, so these things are, are are making a difference. Plus, there was in the past uh, a new law that was supposed to keep people in Hungary, because one of the one of the issues here is that Hungarian workers are essentially leaving. You know, so you, you you're free to go all over Europe. So you, so you do. and Part of part of what I think Orban is doing here is trying to turn Hungary into a labor uh, as a, a you know to export labor in an inverted way. So I think he wants to control as much as he can, partly because of just the political side of it. So I think that's what um, I think that's what the CEU case was. Um, but in in a real sense, I think what's going on here is that he. Appear, he and his cabinet appear to be embracing putting in a, a system where Hungary will be seen and, and understood to be a, a good labor market that you could come cheap, but it's good labor. Um, so, and I think that, so this is what actually happened with the slave labor law. So, German auto manufacturers are moving east. So, they have issues, you know, they have financial issues. So, they're trying to save money or whatever. So, they're coming east. East is Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, right? So Serbia's not in it yet. So ex Yugoslavia's not in it yet. And they go further east in all of those countries because in all of those countries, the, for, uh, the eastern part is the more depressed part. And Debrecen, where this, so this, uh, let me say, the slave labor law was passed because BMW is coming to Hungary. Now, there was a, and, and they're going to be, um, they're going to open a factory, a plant in Debrecen, which is about, 250 kilometers east, directly east of, of um, Budapest. And 100 kilometers north of that is a town called uh, Kosice in Slovakia. And they were in the competition for which city was going to get the plant. And Orban in the past has already offered a lot of concessions to the companies, you know, of course, the tax breaks and uh, you know, so how much they can make and, and all this stuff, right? So the labor and the labor costs are low, but now the slave labor law. This has been dubbed the slave labor law by by um, by the labor union, one of the labor unions, because of course it's a catchy phrase. <laughs> I noticed you you jumped right in on it. Yeah, of course. But, um, yeah. Okay. So so the 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 gist of this law is that. Overtime right now is capped at 250 hours uh, a year, and what I so I'm I, I don't know the details of this, but I'm assuming that um, the the BMW asked for 400, so they want 400 to you want they want to cap um, overtime hours at 400 hours a, um, a year, plus they don't have to pay that overtime for three years. So, you know, you work the overtime, then you don't get the pay, so you got to stick around until they pay you. And so, so this is what triggered the the protests here. Now, the protest started in Budapest and 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 so the protest started in Budapest with the labor unions, but very quickly the uh political parties jumped in. And, there, and so I have a list here. There's like 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 
seven parties, one of which is the Yobik party that you know, and I, I guess the listeners know too, the um, so-called far-right party here. And, you know, I have a friend in one of the parties, the Green Party here, and or let's say let's say someone I know, I wouldn't say she's my friend, but she's a she's an MP here. And she was quoted as saying, you know, this is a good day because all the other parties are all the left parties, Democratic Coalition, Momentum, the Hungarian Liberal Party, Socialist Party, you know. Um, and she said, it's great because we even are able to work with Jobbik. So so the whole the whole movement feels like it's like everybody everybody who's um, who has an interest to be opposed to uh, the Orban government is is jumping in and everyone's happy about it. Now, the key thing to say here, so in December, this felt very much like something different. So it's wintertime. People were still protesting. There was uh, 10,000 people out the first day in Budapest and then 15,000. But when you look at, so I looked at that first and then I started to look at, and then there's also the aspect that the, this might be a big changer. This might be the real thing because um, also provincial towns are, are protesting too. But you need to be aware that the numbers are, you know, okay, small. They're small. So particularly in the city where this is going to happen in Debrecen, it's got like a couple hundred thousand people as a population. Only 250 people came out to protest. Um, you know, maybe that's because you know, they don't want to be seen as protesters and not get a job when the factory opens. But uh, so basically, I'm not sure. There's a feeling that something is happening here, and of course, the sixty-four thousand dollar question is, you know, is this is this going to lead to re- regime change? But I mean, there's a feeling of it, but the numbers don't the numbers don't pan out for me. You know, there was an internet uh, protest in 2014. And there was a hundred thousand people out on the streets just in Budapest alone. You know that's a that's a significant difference. So um, you know whether this is going to change the regime, I don't know because there's still support for for Orban. But but you know it's definitely um, it's definitely going to make him think and make the government think. And and uh, uh, so, but the question is, will they repeal this? Will they repeal the revoke this uh, law? So I don't know. If if this is so unpopular, even among Orban's supporter supporters, then why do it? I mean, could this end up being political suicide for Viktor Orban? I suspect he thinks no. I suspect he thinks it's not political suicide that he can ride it. That they can ride it out. You know, I mean, and as I said, the numbers of people protesting kind of bear that out from his perspective. He's just not seeing. 100,000 people on the streets protesting with the numbers growing. However, however, uh, there's a threat for a, for a general strike on the 19th. And so, and I should say that uh, all of this stuff started, the, the law was passed or signed into law on December 12th, I think, and then protests started right after that. So, and then Christmas came, so there was a hiatus, but they did have a protest on uh, the 5th of January, and I think that was 10,000 people out on the 5th um, here in Budapest. So, and there's a threat for a general strike. Now, if the gen- if on the 19th, now if the general strike happens, you know, that could change everything. Also, if it doesn't happen, this is actually what the, one of the articles you, you recommend I read said, one of the guys said that. And actually, I should say that the articles that I read that you suggest, you might want to mention which ones we're talking about here, but um, they seemed spot on. They seem spot on because what it appears to me to be just on the ground is that, as I said earlier, 
Hungary is, is, is transforming itself into the labor force of the East. So that if you want to, if you're Germany or France, you know, you want to have a, um, a good factory in the East with less money but good workers, you, you're going to think to come here. And also because Orban's going to give you stuff. He's going to give you above and beyond just a tax break. So, and, and I think this is, the, this is what this signifies here. Uh, those articles were from Left East. Actually, uh, Alex found those online, mm-hmm. and you can find them at their website, criticattackatac.ro. And you've been on the show before talking about kind of the incompetence of the left of the opposition political parties within Hungary. Uh, and in one of the Left East articles, they talk about the recent amendment to the labor code has been part of a series of labor reforms since the government took power in 2010. Flexibilization of labor relations has been a trend in Hungary, almost irrespectively of the type of government in power ever since 1990. So you've talked about yes, the, in, the weakness and the incompetence of the left. So does it make any difference who leads Hungary then when it comes to economic policy? How different could it be if the opposition did take power in Hungary? You know, that's a very good question. And I think, so my personal opinion is it wouldn't be that much different because the the air, the the, the atmosphere here is, is one of which, it's, so I don't, so let me say this, the, the propaganda doesn't focus like on the streets, so like, you know, out on the streets, like, hey, get a job or whatever. But the feeling here is that every we that the country, the Hungarians are a labor force. So there's a kind of a sense that, you know, what else almost almost like what else can we do? You know, what what else are we strong at or whatever? And that's that would be my that's my gut feeling that that, yeah, that this is this would happen in. So it would happen even if the left were in power, but the left would say we were forced to do it. They, they would say, you know, there are forces we don't have control over, so we have to do it. But I, I think it would be – so they would continue pushing. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is there's a – on the one hand, there's a labor shortage here. I mean, and that's just what I see in, in kind of the service sector. Um, and, and people talk about the labor shortage all the time. Um, and in fact, in fact, I've seen uh, like in fast food places, clearly people who are immigrants working there now. I may have mentioned that before, but this this number is growing just just from my own anecdotal walking around and looking. Um, so on the one hand, there is talk about you know a labor shortage. So I wonder, you know, if you're opening a factory, you know, is there going to be enough workers, and will people want to go there rather than go? say, working in a factory in Britain, because, you know, one of the other things is that hasn't been lost since the beginning of, since at least when I came here was that feeling still that the West is better than here. You know, you're, you're going to get more if you go somewhere else than if you stay here. So, and if you live East, you, you might be feeling that more. So if you live a couple hundred kilometers from Budapest, you may be thinking, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get over Budapest and just go to, you know, go to London or, or wherever and maybe not work in a factory here, you know. You know, uh, one of the things that I saw was CNBC reported yesterday, the government says the labor reforms are necessary in uh, Hungary. The government 
says the labor reforms are necessary to provide much needed support for businesses struggling to cope with a shortage of workers. As you were saying, the jobless rate in Hungary has dropped to a near all time low of 3.7 percent, while the number of uh, unfiled jobs has reportedly doubled to a record high in the last three years. An aging population and an exodus of talent, as you were saying, to other European countries has also exacerbated the labor gap. In fact, the problem has deemed uh, was deemed serious enough to prompt the government to try to encourage young people to return home, offering a program of housing and employment benefits in 2015. Typically, this type of labor gap is partially offset by immigration, but yes. <laughs> Orban and his political allies secured a parliamentary supermajority last year by running on a ticket that firmly opposes mass immigration. So it started making me think about opposition here in the United States to mass immigration. How much yes. is hum- uh, Hungary's labor shortage than a creation of Orban's anti-immigration policy? And is Orban's slave law that exploits Hungarian labor the result of Orban not allowing immigrant workers into his country? You know, that's sticky. That's a sticky question, but I think, yes, I think that might be the case. Um, there are immigrants here. So I've I've... Uh, I've mentioned this in the past, but now it's the numbers of Africans, for example, because that's, uh, they are the most visible, um, here is, is growing, men and women. And, and there's even a community now. So there's definitely not, there, there is definitely some immigration. I don't know what form it is, how they imagine it, you know, whether, you know, they, if it's uh, affluent families who they let in, who knows? Who knows what the deal is? Because, of course, there's a... Uh, as far as I know, there's still a system here where if you pay 200,000 euros, you can get citizenship. So you can pay for citizenship here if you've got enough money. Um, but, you know, is his stance against immigration hurting? So, as I said, I'm seeing more immigrants working. Still not a lot. Still not a lot, but it is more than it used to be because in the past it was zero. Um yeah, I think it might be. I think it might might be. But at the same time, you know, I can if you're a nationalist and you are, um, you know, you, let's say you, you're, you're a nationalist, you, you want to keep everyone in this country working. Right. So you want it to be like that. So you don't want to. And, and you, you they draw a picture. So they draw pictures of, of uh, parts of the city of Paris, Sweden, you know, and they, they scare people with, you know, this is what Budapest could look like. You know, crime will increase. A thousand percent, et cetera, you know, so um, I suspect that he's in a kind of a corner because he's using a rhetoric that's not really um, an issue so much, you know, because I, I don't think there's like a right, at least right now, there's not like the same stream of migrants on their way here. And he's using that in the political sense and also with the George Soros. But there's no substance to it. There's no substance to it. And the reality is that people are leaving and going to work in other places and um not having immigrants here you know um <laughs> you know it's a good question one of the things i was wondering about too is how much because it, orban really used george soros as a scapegoat yeah, for incredibly. all of the country's problems including as you pointed out these very high end propaganda campaigns that were anti-semitic to what extent? Yeah, he- yeah, and I should hold on a sec. I should just jump in here to say that when he was, when the response to these protests is, you know, it's the George Soros migrant-loving group. <laughs> right. 
I love that. Hey, so uh, so by booting him, by ending that as a controversy in Hungary, how much has he lost the scapegoat that he could use to ply votes from his supporters? Because now he seems to be turning his animus towards Macron, Emmanuel Macron of France, and his take on immigration policy. So has he lost the scapegoat that he needed, and is he just moving on to the next one? Well, so that what I just said is is a, is a part of this. So I don't know. I don't know yet. Maybe he's pulling in another one. But just keep in mind, he is still using um, Shortosh in this, right? Because he and I think I think no. I think no. I think he hasn't lost a scapegoat in Shortosh, but he's lost because CEU's gone. I know that's the question. Because CEU's gone, it's it's been deflated a bit. But he can still say, which is exactly what he's saying. Yeah, this is funded by Shortosh. And, and like I've mentioned before, you know, uh, down in Serbia, I, I have some kind of confirmation that some Soros money did, you know, help out the the um, protests and revolution, you know, paying it through NGOs or whatever. And also there's the question of Ukraine. And at least in probably in the government's mind here, in Orban's mind, you know, he's taken those things as, as a given. You know, this is what Soros does. So... And he, and you know he's Hungarian. He knows this country, so he's a, a triple threat. If you if you understand, uh, meaning you know he's rich, he's Jewish, and he's Hungarian, and he knows. So he's you know he's terrible to them, actually. So our uh, uh, you know BMW, according to the Left East report, BMW helped write the actual legislation for the slave law. They wrote uh, legislation when it came to public education. They wrote legislation when it came to taxation. Are German corporations then the real driving force behind the far right, not just in Europe, but in Hungary specifically? Um, how, how do you mean that? Do you mean like they, because, of their, because of their policies that makes the far right grow? You mean like that? Yeah, and also supporting far right governments who embrace the uh, economic policies uh, of German corporations like BMW. So I, I, it's hard to so let's let's say let's say Yobi. Okay, so your question would would mean that Yobik is and would, would it mean this that that Yobik would, would would is is using the rhetoric of you know get rid of German companies and that's the reason why we're we're in trouble because German companies here do you, do you see it like that you mean yeah like the, it's 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 kind of contradictory you know it at one point it's saying hey uh, we don't want outsiders but at the other on the other hand it's saying hey we want german corporations to write our legislation so are german corporations supporting groups like fidesz while at the same time uh, outsiders are the driving force or hatred for outsiders are the driving force of the far right I mean, I mean, it seems really contradictory to me and confusing. Okay, so so the problem is is that um, Yobik is farther right than Fidesz is, and that and so the, so I, I I suspect so so in, 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 in if I understand your question correctly, no, in the sense that uh, they that the German the German uh, manufacturers are not supporting the ultimate far right here. They're supporting the middle right, and I think it's much more about the government. And I also think it's much more about. Okay, so so I suspect this is my own a personal opinion, but I suspect that Orban 
is not as callous about the society as as one may think. I think he actually believes that he's trying to make good policies. I think he thinks of himself as a kind of a beneficial dictator, let's say, or beneficial king who might be uh, strict and just, but it is for the good of, of all. I, I suspect that he believes that. Um, whether that's true or not, that's, that's your own decision. And I think that he that he is making these concessions to the to the car companies because he believes the way to come out, the way to to um, have a decent life for people here is that they just go to work and work in factories. You know, sort of blue collar the blue collar uh, labor force. Now, in in this sense, when the Germans are dictating what is happening in Hungary. The question is, you know, does that make, does that increase the far right here? And, I, I, you know, I can't say yes to that. I can't, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I, I can't say yes. And I also don't know if that increases the support for Fidesz. I, sus, I suspect n- not. I suspect that it doesn't increase the support for Orban. But what if you don't have a job and you get a job there and it's okay for you? So what? How's that going to go? You know, and, and some of these places that we're talking about, uh, Debrecen in the east, the eastern part, as I said, is 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 definitely more depressed. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether. And also, I, I, I mentioned, you know, there's less protesters there, so maybe there is some sense that, you know, hey, secretly we're happy about this. I I, I don't know for sure. The part so happy about happy about the factory coming because you imagine you're going to get a good job. But then realizing, you know, especially because had it not been publicized, of course it became publicized, obviously, because it's bad, but had it not been, you know, you, secretly they could have passed this thing and make you work a lot more, but you would have done it because you were in a good job. And I suspect that, I suspect that Orban's going to get away with this. I think he's going to get away with it. There's just not enough people protesting. Todd, it's always a pleasure to have you on our show. Yeah, I was coming on here. I knew you guys were going to get come to me, so I did. Oh, wait, wait. I want to say one more thing, yeah. though. Um, yeah, because because I knew you guys were going to call me up as soon as I saw the protest. I did a little research, and I read a little, a quick little article, that, or white paper, actually. It was written by uh, a guy in Serbia, a professor in Serbia, who talked about protests in the East, you know, in, in uh, Eastern Europe. And he basically, and then I wrote him an email. I said, hey, what do you think is going to happen here in Hungary? And he said, you know, you need a few, you need a few things to make this actually be a regime, a regime change. And, he, he, you know, the government support is low. Opposition credibility is on the rise. And there's international contact is favorable. But you also need that if, if the support of the government is broad, like it is here still, it's probably not going to not going to be um, successful. So that I wanted to say that's the sixty four thousand dollar question: Is this going to result in a regime change? You know, probably not. Todd, great to hear from you. Todd Williams is an African American from Sacramento, California, who has lived in Budapest, Hungary since nineteen ninety two, mostly by chance, and is our correspondent in Hungary. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice, sir. Have a great twenty nineteen. Yeah, Give my best to you, your wife, and your kid, and uh, I'll talk to you real soon because I know that these protests are going to happen again, and I'll be curious to see if they grow or if yeah, they shrink. The, especially if the general strike happens and it's successful, you definitely call me. All right, definitely. Take care. I'm not as smart as you think. And yes, 
I do realize some of you think I'm a freaking idiot. This is how the news media here in the U.S. is really white. No, I mean, really, really white. To the point that they don't recognize and completely deny their own role within white supremacy. We'll find out just how white the news media is when we speak in a few minutes with award-winning newspaper reporter Aaron Miguel Cantu. He has an article in the new issue of The Baffler titled... The Whitest News You Know, The False Promise of a Press for Everybody. This week's question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? All replies are going to be read on the air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. This week's winner gets one of a limited number, a limited edition of Lino Cut 2019 cal- calendars by our correspondent in Puerto Rico, Dave Buchan. You can see it right now, I believe, by going to Dave Buchan, B-U-C-H-E-N, dot wordpress dot com. Again, the question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? If you want to hear my apology in its entirety, you're going to have to go to Patreon.com slash this is hell. Leave your response now at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. You can also follow us on Twitter at this is hell radio. Sign up for our email newsletter at this is hell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the news media is way more white than you think it is, unless you're not white, in which case you probably already realize just how white the news is. Prostitutes are revolting for sex worker rights, and they've been doing it for a lot longer than you think. There's a potentially new global challenge to climate change. We'll also have rotten history. Don't worry, we're going to be getting to that. Listener feedback. We'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast and what's coming up on Patreon next week. Of course, as I was saying, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We'll get to Twist Off Knowledge and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly, gnomes gone insane. This is hell. Actually, let's get to rotten history right now, as we are awaiting our guest. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In the year 1918, 101 years ago, in western England, more than 150 coal miners or colliers. Yeah, collier means coal miner. And did you know Mertz means merchant? Yeah, whatever. 150 colliers were killed in an underground explosion at the Mini Pit. M-I-N-N-I-E Pit. A mine regarded as one of the most profitable in the North Staffordshire coal fields and also one of the most dangerous. I'm betting that was no coincidence because if you really want the big money in capitalism, you got to do as little as possible for your workers' safety and economic conditions. The mini pit, named after the mine owner's daughter, I assume the owner and his daughter's last name 
were not pit, yielded bituminous coal, a type associated with a high incidence of poisonous and explosive gases released in the mining process, and is it any wonder how often coal mining comes up in rotten history? It's almost like we should just call the segment stories of people dying in coal mines. Britain's demand for coal at the time was high due to World War I, also known as the Great War, because it was so great it killed 17 million people. And then a sudden explosion ripped through the mini pit, the mine, not the owner's daughter. A total of 248 miners were toiling below ground, including many recently discharged from the military to address the wartime labor shortage. So risk your life for your country at war, survive, get sent home, then lose your life for your country while on the job. Yep. Sounds like the way governments treat veterans forever. The exact cause of the explosion would never be determined, though I'm going to go with coal mining. But many suspected that a faulty miner's lamp had ignited coal dust and flammable gas. Sure, I'm certain it was an individual's fault and not the whole collective practice of unsafe mining to reap in as much profit as possible. Yeah, let's blame that guy's lamp. Rescuers soon removed a few dozen survivors from the deep tunnels, but another uh, 155 miners had died within minutes of the blast, either from roof collapse or from inhaling poison gas. Among the dead were 44 boys between the ages of 14 and 16. Because back in the good old days that Republicans want us to go back to, you could literally work children to death. I think the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is actually behind that policy. It took rescuers 19 months to recover all bodies from the mine. During that prolonged effort, the captain of one rescue team died from a malfunction in his breathing apparatus, thus bringing the total death toll to 156. Even rescuing coal miners was deadly in the, at the time, and it still is. Is there anything more appropriate for rotten history, by the way, than coal mine disasters? And can you think of anything more hellish than working in a coal mine? Read Zola's Germinal. It's so creepy how he describes working in a coal mine in the 19th century. Or is that 18th? No, I can't remember. I mean, the places actually look like our images of hell, as if artists went down there, did paintings, and said, oh, this is what hell looks like. No wonder coal miners are so damn religious. They work in freaking hell. If all around me, Every day was an image of hell. I'd go to Mass twice a day, as well as pray toward Mecca whenever is necessary. Hell, I'd go to synagogue regularly. That's rotten history. And it proves once again, this is hell. The news media, from the newsroom to its content, editorial and otherwise, is very white despite decades of promises by the industry to diversify their workplace, opinions and perspectives. Here to help us understand exactly how white the news really is, at least I am hoping, award-winning newspaper reporter Aaron Miguel Cantu has an article in the new issue of The Baffler titled The Whitest News You Know, The False Promise of a Press for Everybody. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aaron. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you on your show, sir. On our show, sir. Uh, Aaron has written for national and regional publications and contributed to the book. Who do you serve? Who do you protect? Police violence and resistance in the United States. You can find Aaron's article that we'll be discussing today at thebaffler.com. And you can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron underscore Cone underscore Choco. So you write how a few years ago, right before the current U.S. president uh, announced his candidacy, right before Trump announced his candidacy, you had a job interview with a large digital publication in New York, and you explained that you never got a call back and that for all the ways you may have presented yourself as an insufficiently impressive uh, uh, candidate to your interviewer, quote, one stood out to me in especially high relief, a disagreement over the definition of white supremacy. I would think that no matter what job interview you were at, if white supremacy came up, it's probably not going to go well. Why did white supremacy come up in a job interview at an online publication? Right. Well, so the um, the editor who interviewed me asked me to bring in a bunch of story pitches. Um, and the, uh, I guess, in one of the pitches, it was about something completely different. It was about... Um, it was actually about the emerging legal cannabis industry, um, which, you know, a lot of reporting and a lot of um, just if you watch if you've watched the development of the industry, um, it's been a primarily white industry. Um, you know, the people who are the biggest players tend to be white um, tend to not have been um, not have borne the brunt of the worst of the war on drugs. Um so I, you know, in, in my understanding of, of um, that arrangement, I had just kind of offhandedly referred to it as white supremacist, um, because in, in, in my much broader definition of white supremacy, um, it's a sort of passive system of power accumulation that takes uh, proactive uh, steps and actions from people, I think, to correct, because, you know, America was, was explicitly founded as a white European uh, male-centric, property-owning country, um, and so actionable steps need to be taken um, to correct that. So you know this was, but this was all stuff that that was sort of where I was coming from um, to the subject, and so I didn't think that I was going to have this conversation with the editor about um, the definition of white supremacy, and so that was kind of an awkward moment throughout the interview. You know, obviously, this is a guy with, um, he's like a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor. He's obviously very smart, very accomplished. And um, I'm just, you know, a freelancer in my 20s. Um, but I think that that sort of disagreement and that moment uh, kind of reflected a a broader shift in understanding that I think has really begun to happen more so uh, since that interview took place. Um, it happened in early 2015. Uh, Trump announced his candidacy in the summer of 2015, and I think, obviously, Trump winning and white nationalists feeling emboldened over the last few years um, has really brought these these uh, ideas and concepts and issues um, to the front of people's minds. Um, and I think, you know, there's more space now for the analytical approach that, that I had suggested to my interviewer um, than there was back then. You called white supremacy a passive system of power accumu- accumulation. What do you mean by passive? Why do you see it as as a passive system? And what would you say to someone who argues the system is more aggressive, that we don't merely accept white supremacy, but it's act- actively enforced and imposed upon us daily? 
Right. Yeah. I was actually, I read that line after the story was published and I was thinking about it. And I think, I think it could be passive or it can be active. Absolutely. I don't think it has to be either one. Um, I think if I could go back and edit, I may have said, you know, passive or active. Uh, but the reason that I wanted to include the word passive at that time um, was just to sort of capture how um, the maintenance of this system of power and this arrangement of power in society, um, if you already happen to be somebody who uh, holds that position of power or benefits from white supremacy, you don't really have to do much to, uh, you know, to reap its benefits. You can kind of just sit back in your, you know, your comfortable editor job or, you know, whatever sort of perch you've, you've managed to um, scramble yourself up to. And uh, just, you know, just let things play out as they are. Um, so that's what I meant by passive in that context was that, you know, if someone who's already privileged um, it, it doesn't have to do much, you know, to to reap the benefits of it. Um, but of course, obviously, it can be an active thing. It can be a very aggressive thing, as we're seeing, you know, under this, I think, under this presidential administration. Um, I think what's more important is to recognize it in its various forms, whether it comes in a sort of passive form um, or it comes in a sort of aggressively active form, um, I think it's still, you know, it, it, it's it's the same thing. The method of enforcing it is just different. And when you were talking to this editor, did you get any impression, or, or do you have any impression, even after that interview and the years since, uh, that there is a generational disconnect on white supremacy? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that's part of it. I think um, I think in this last decade, uh, if you were a teenager or in your 20s, um, particularly, particularly from like 2010 to, you know, 2019, um, there's been, I think for me personally, a lot of the social movements of this last decade have just you know, really push my analysis. And I know that's also true for a lot of my, my peers. Um, you know, it, it kind of started out with the uh, global uprisings in Occupy Wall Street and uh, Black Lives Matter in the middle of the decade and, uh, you know, kind of a movement for black liberation, I think, was, was the first uh, time, I think, the wider American conversation took the sort of critical approach, more critical approach to white supremacy. Um, if if you read about sort of like quote unquote whiteness studies, which was an emerging sort of like sociological field in the nineties, um, I think the social movements of this past decade brought those emerging concepts uh more to a mainstream audience and a mainstream understanding. And I think young people were just uh most well positioned to, you know, take these new understandings as something um that wasn't scary or complex or, you know, something to be resisted. It was just uh, you know, it was just kind of kind of a given. And then I think the election of Donald Trump just kind of um, affirmed everyone's worst fears about how, uh, you know, misogynistic and racist and, uh, uh, you know, in favor of people with, with wealth and property, um, this country's culture really is. Um, so I do definitely think there's a generational divide. And, um, you know, I personally, I, I turned 30 this year. In some ways, I feel like that means my life is kind of over. But I mean, I'm very supportive of, of um, you know, these these definitions and these conceptions of power uh, being renewed and refreshed with each new generation. I think it's very important.
You explained that your interviewer was not only uh, uh, was not only an editor, but as you were saying earlier, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And you described the interviewer saying to you, white supremacy was an ideological commitment to the belief that people of European descent are superior. And you add yeah. such a definition would absolve this editor and others like him from allegations that they passively participate in a white supremacist system. Only Zieg Heiling extremists deserve that label, not well-meaning media professionals who just happen to preside over all white teams of reporters. What do you think we miss in our understanding of white supremacy or of racism or of sexism, even misogyny or patriarchy, of any cultural system of oppression, when we don't recognize our own complicity within that system, that these systems can't exist to some degree without all our complicity in that system. What do we miss in our understanding of white supremacy when we don't recognize that we are all complicit? Right. Well, I think, I, you know, I guess it just comes down to an understanding of uh, its institutional character. Um, I think uh, the... The editor's definition of, of white supremacy is uh, puts the onus sort of on an individual, um, maybe a, a small group of people, a fringe, a fringe group that we like to uh, consider separate from uh, the broader um, American power structure, and uh, that's just not true. White supremacy is uh, an inanimating force, if not the animating force of of um, much of American politics and American culture and American life. And I mean, you know, the, the examples are just endless from uh, discrimination in hiring to redlining to, uh, I mean, you know, everything I wrote about in the piece, which was just the, um, uh, the unwillingness of, of uh, media organizations to integrate despite half a century of promises to do so. And um, the way that this yields coverage that, you know, refers to to, uh, for example, um, uh, the uh, congressman from Iowa um, making explicitly racist remarks. Um, we have reporters who refer to it as uh, racially tinged or racially charged. You know, and and those aren't euphemisms. I think would be used if the people who were reporting the news were more likely to be affected by the violence and uh, were li- more likely to be targeted by white nationalists. Um, so I think, I think, uh, I mean, at least in the context of this conversation and of this piece, uh, journalism, uh, the representation of reality really suffers when, uh, you have a very, um, uh, limited and, uh, I guess, um, yeah, I guess limited definition and and conception of white supremacy as the editor with whom I spoke to had, I would hope that, you know, the developments of everything over the past few years have have uh, sophisticated um, this this editor's understanding of white supremacy. I mean, he's obviously a super talented dude. He won a Pulitzer Prize and everything. But um, I mean, I think this is just kind of a blind spot that uh, particularly a lot of a lot of white people have, although not exclusively white people. Um, but you know, my hope is that things are changing. How much do you think does any? Uh, how much do you think? objectivity is rationalized or used as the logic that ends up supporting the kind of white supremacist content that you were talking about with terms like racially tinged being used. Right. Well, I, uh, if, if you, 
get into the piece. So much of the piece and, and the purpose of it um, for me personally was I wanted to, to, sorry, I wanted to distill a lot of history um, that you can find in a book called News for All the People. And uh, it's by Juan Gonzalez and Joseph Torres. And um, there's just a lot of really rich anecdotes from the history of um, people of color uh, who who attempted to you know start their own presses explicitly in order to fight back against stereotypes and and um, uh, uh, you know damaging representations of of their race or their perceived race um, in the white press. So I'm I'm not exactly sure where this concept of objectivity first arose, but at least when um, the Associated Press uh, first came into being in the mid 19th century, um, it relied on on uh, dispatches from reporters across the country sent over telegraph wires, which was still, you know, then a new technology. And uh, what what um, Gonzalez and Dota's right is, um, you know, the fact that they had these primarily white reporters living on the frontiers of America um, just began to, you know, led, led to this huge influx of racist distortions, um, overt encouragements of violence against people of color, black people, uh, Mexican people, um, you know, Chinese, uh, Chinese immigrants in this country. Um, and, and out of that sort of, um, I guess out of that sort of uh, uh, formation of, of AP as a legitimate source of nationwide news um, uh, came the, the tenets or the, or the principles of objective journalism. I'm not exactly sure, you know, what the, what, how, how sort of objectivity arose from something that was so explicitly damaging to people of color. Um, but there is a connection there. Um, I do know that one reason editors began to demand that their reporters in the in the mid nineteenth century um, limit their dispatches to uh, I guess quote unquote factual accounts um, without any sort of commentary or or uh, or opinion um, was because the uh, whoever was sending the the the, uh, tele- the the message over the telegraph lines um, was charged per word. So it was in their interest, it was an economic decision to uh, limit these dispatches to, you know, quote unquote, the facts. But, you know, the way that those facts were filtered through this journalist, this white journalist in the mid 19th century um, had the effect of uh, promoting damaging stereotypes and uh, uh, assumptions about people of color, people who were in marginalized uh, uh, classes of people in this country. Um, so, I mean, today, then you have the result of, uh, of this legacy. You know, I, I also wrote in the piece, um, AP News had a tweet in November that described the caravan of immigrants from Central America approaching, uh, you know, the U.S. southern border um, as, a, as a ragged army, you know, which is something that I think is, is straight out of sort of white nationalist uh, wet dreams, um, you know, that you have this like horde of brown people rushing toward the border, um, which is very much the opposite, I think, of, of what this group of people is. I mean, it's a, it's a group of tired, hungry, desperate people who are seeking something, uh, who, who wouldn't be on this perilous journey if they didn't see it as their only ticket to a decent life. Um, 
So, I, yeah, I mean, I think the whole the whole idea of objectivity, I think, deserves far more scrutiny. But I think um, I think it's much easier to uh, pronounce something as objective if the people who are around you look like you and think like you and uh, there's common agreement among you and your colleagues that something is sort of the objective fact and the objective truth. I think it's much easier than to sell yourself that myth that you are promoting an objective fact and an objective truth. But I think that myth falls apart when you look at the actual history of the American press and how it has always been complicit in the uh, violent maintenance of white supremacy and uh, other uh, forms of power. Can new technologies save journalism, save the newsroom from white supremacy? After all, now we have the Internet. It's not limited to just, you know, your history that you offer from the book that you were just citing is absolutely fascinating. It's, it, it turns out that white supremacy is the reason that we had only three television networks for so long. It really is amazing how much white supremacy controlled the message for so long, so especially through those older technologies. So can the internet and can the advent of um, uh, websites and news outlets run by people of color like The Root, can that save journalism? I don't know. I mean, I, I will say it certainly isn't the, it certainly cannot be the only thing um, and may in fact only be useful as a supplement to, I think, a sort of deeper uh, social change, whatever that looks like. And the reason I say that is because also in my piece, I looked at moments in history when um, particularly um, members and, and leaders of Black civil rights organizations thought that new technologies would lead to, uh, you know, just, just an easier life for, for people of color. Um, the radio is, is one example, you know, I mean, uh, amateur black uh, radio operators in the early 20th century um, used the program or used the technology um, to broadcast, you know, whatever they wanted. Um, and the, the electromagnetic spectrum was eventually usurped uh, by the federal government in, in uh, coordination with other large corporations, including United Fruit and uh, Western Telegram. And uh, then later on in the 1970s, um, with, with the dawn of cable, um, once again, a prominent black civil rights leader thought that cable could form a means of, uh, you know, uh, oppressed people getting their messages and, and being able to communicate with each other in a way that went around the white dominated um, broadcast networks. Obviously, that's not what happened with cable news. I mean, the, the most popular cable news network now is Fox News, which is openly deferential to a, uh, a, a white nationalist president. Um, and then you have the Internet now. And so also in the piece, I mean, the part that I wanted to do, or I guess sort of sort of um, add to the analysis by Gonzalez and Torres was um, looking at how uh, social media, Web 2.0, whatever you want to call it, how the infrastructure um, of, of that, of that, uh, or, or how that digital infrastructure has promoted and, and, um, upheld white supremacy, if not entrenched it further. And I mean, I think you see that now with, uh, for example, YouTube, um, which has become, which is basically, 
appears to be supplanting traditional news among very young people, you know, among, among teenagers as a leading source of um, just like understanding the reality around us. Um, it's a great report out by um, by a researcher. I can't remember her name off off the top of my head, but I I mentioned her name in my piece um, that looks at some of the uh, most influential people on the far right and how they get their message out on YouTube and how they build their social clout and professional clout on YouTube. And they're able to game the system by posting each other um, on, on each other's shows and promoting each other. And it all has the effect of keeping uh, viewers on YouTube locked into this sort of circuit of um, far-right speakers. And uh, YouTube incentivizes the whole thing by um, allowing people with very high subscriber counts to uh, share in ad revenue. Um, so I think that's... And then you have, of course, Twitter and Facebook. Twitter, uh, the CEO of Twitter has said the reason that Nazis... That the company is is reluctant to ban Nazis and other you know far right misogynist racist um, trolls is because you know the company profits when anybody's using the platform doesn't matter what they're saying on it as long as they're using it um, he has explicitly said that and then of course Facebook uh, was uh, according to former employees of Facebook um, throughout the 2016 campaign uh, the platform was was critical in uh, allowing Trump very provocative, very white nationalist, anti-immigrant campaign message to overshadow, you know, anything from her opponent, uh, from his opponent, Hillary Clinton, um, because Facebook awards digital real estate to content that generates more uh, clicks and, and basically causes more uh, people to, to, you know, melt down on the platform. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think the history of, of, all communications technologies in this country, from uh, from the telegraph to radio to cable to broadcast to the internet to social media, you know, people of color at each of these junctures have hope that a freer flow of information could uh, result in in uh, the end of the racial caste system in America and a more fair uh, a more fair society in this country, and it never has. And I think the message is that, you know, confronting these deeper sorts of um, oppressive power structures are not going to, uh, it, 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 it's, it may, uh, technology may assist us in that, but history shows us that technology is not um, the cure-all for these things. It takes deeper work. It takes, I don't know what it takes. You know, it, 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 it takes some sort of deeper and more profound, more fundamental revolution that hasn't happened in this country yet. This is really a fascinating article, Aaron. We've been speaking with award-winning newspaper reporter Aaron Miguel Cantu. He has an article in the new issue of The Baffler titled The Whitest News You Know, The False Promise of a Press for Everybody. This is an exceptional article that our uh, listeners should read because once you read Aaron's writing, it will give you, it, it may have an impact on the way that you are critical of media and the way that you consume media and the way that you see media. I think this is one of the most important articles I've read in a long time when it comes to media criticism. You can find Aaron's article at thebaffler.com. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron underscore Cone underscore 
Choco. That's A-A-R-O-N underscore C-O-N underscore C-O. C-H-O-C-O. One last question for you, Aaron. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, on the whole, only 41% of people who responded to a recent Gallup Knight Foundation survey said they had some trust in the news media. Among those who identified as Republicans, 94% said they had lost trust in the media over the last decade. But in your article, you don't trust the media, and on this show, I've been critical of the media. When does media criticism cross the line into not trusting the media at all, to being like Trump and the far right and their critique of what they call the fake news. Right. Well, I mean, it's an interesting position for me because I am a newspaper reporter. I mean, it's my it's my full time job, and I'm also at the same time extremely skeptical of the institution. I think uh, you know, I think it matters. I think what it comes down to is your your uh, underlying um, intentions. You know, what what do you want for um, the society? Do you want a freer society? Do you want liberation for people? Or do you want, uh, you know, or do you want the, um, the material um, enjoyment of some people to come at the expense of, of many others, as I think, you know, Trump and the far right uh, feel, you know, I mean, they have, they have, um, uh, they love prisons, they love uh, walls, they love uh, police state, measures um so i mean i think i think the difference comes in with with what do you ultimately want do you want a freer society do you want liberation for everybody do you want to abolish these oppressive arrangements of power that have been here for centuries or are you cool with all of that so long as some people um you know are having a good time on the backs of others and so i mean i think that's really what it what it comes down to is just um what do you want for society? And beginning from that basic premise, I think you can, uh, I think you can uh, apply your criticism appropriately. Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show again. People can find the article you wrote at The Baffler, the uh, whitest news you know, at thebaffler.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high. This is hell. Active sex workers are never asked their opinion about prostitution, and they definitely aren't asked about their ideas on sex workers' rights. But as this is not the media, this is hell. We got no problem talking to sex workers, and we have done so several times in the past. We'll find out what the fight for sex workers' rights is all about in a few when we talk to Molly Smith, co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, the fight for sex workers' rights. Molly is a sex worker and activist with the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement, known as SWARM. She's also involved with Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity based in Edinburgh, which is working to decriminalize sex work in Scotland. So, Alex, what have you been up to on social media the last few weeks while I've been out and about? Uh, people really like this Facebook interview, or this thing I shared on Facebook. It was an In These Times article by Miles Camp Lesson on Democrats using the pay-go rule to shoot themselves in the crotch. Yeah, that's a great article. Miles did a fantastic job on that article. Congratulations, Miles. Also, a counterpunch article I shared on the Koch brothers buying up a giant voter data mining operation that I I want to talk about on the show because it's really interesting. And uh, sorry, everyone, for being off-brand, but I shared good news that journalist and past guest Max Zerngast was just released from a Turkish prison 
Uh, so sorry about going off brand there. Again, the bad news there. He was in a Turkish prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Always looking on the dark side, Chuck. Uh, also, on Instagram, I shared a pic of Chuck's newest reading material, American Frontiersmen. Mm-hmm. I'll be sharing a little bit about that later on. In and life. on Twitter, I posted a bunch of stuff about the left and then deleted it before I hit the send button. Oh, that's sweet. Awesome. That's, uh, that's what I do now when I get <laughs> mad about something. I just write a passive-aggressive thing, and then I just delete it. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and... So far, 192 people have done so. We now have the highest rating, 5 out of 5 stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. But 192 people so far giving us 5 stars out of 192 people rating our show. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us 5 stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment... I promise I'll read yours on the air. This week's question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? All replies read following our next guest. This week's winner gets one of a limited number of Lino Cut 2019 calendars by our Puerto Rico correspondent Dave Buchan. You can see these beautiful, beautiful calendars at davebuchan.wordpress.com. That's B U C H E N. You might know Dave from the Banners and Cranks performances by Theodore Ublek or other work that he has done with Ublek, uh, making puppets, playing music. So you might know Dave from Theater Ublek, and these are stunning, stunning calendars. His art is really beautiful. If you want to hear my apology in its entirety, my apology, what I'm publicly apologizing for in 2019, you're going to have to go to patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, the question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won Dave's calendar. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, prostitutes are revolting for sex worker rights, and they've been doing it for a lot longer than you think. There's a potentially new global challenge to climate change. We'll also get to listener feedback. We'll tell you what happened on last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, as well as what's coming up on next week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from Hell. We'll also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. I'm pretty sure we will. I've got to tell you about some Christmas gifts that I received this year and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell hell prostitutes are fighting for their rights and they've been fighting for their rights a lot longer than you think the problem is too often people working as prostitutes are rarely asked their opinion on sex work leading to it being criminalized and sex workers in contact with their greatest security risk the police here to help us understand the sex worker rights movement and why their fight for safety and improved economic conditions is so important for all civil rights movements. Molly Smith is co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Welcome to This Is Hell, Molly. 
Hi. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Molly is a sex worker and activist with the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement. You can find out more about SWARM, which is what the movement is known as, by visiting swarmcollective.org. She's also involved with Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity based in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, which is working to decriminalize sex work in Scotland. You can find out more about Scott Pep by visiting Scott scot-pep.org.uk and you can follow Molly on Twitter at Pasta Chips where she describes herself as a tired prostitute communist and feminist. I love that (laughs) description. That is really fantastic. So let me just start with this because I'm never certain because I've talked with a lot of sex workers on our show. What Mm -hmm. is the better term to use? Prostitution or sex work? Does it make any difference? Oh, good question. Um, It's complicated. I think, um, in general, people prefer sex work because it um, speaks to sex work as work, and it's obviously like you know a strong political statement and choice to like uh, situate uh, prostitution as labour in that way. Um, That being said, obviously. When Juno and I uh, decided to name our book Revolting Prostitutes, we were very much kind of looking to reclaim um, the term prostitute, which we both um, have had a bit of a journey with over the years. We were initially um, really hating it and feeling like it was always an insult. And uh, as we've kind of grown, um, we've both come to quite enjoy it and to feel that it... um, that it actually has a kind of value of its own. Um, So, yeah, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) You start the book uh, with a quote from author and New Yorker staff writer Ariel Levy uh, saying, the women who are really being emulated and obsessed over in our culture now, strippers, porn stars, pinups, aren't even people. They are merely sexual uh, persona, erotic dollies from the land of make-believe. And their performance and performances, which is the only capacity in which we uh, see these women, we so fetishize, they don't even speak. As far as we know, they have no ideas, no feelings, no political beliefs, no relationships, no past, no future, no humanity. It, uh-huh. it, why do we view the women we emulate and obsess over as without humanity. What does that say about us? Is that that contradictory that we obsess and emulate them, but we view them without humanity? Or is that just uh, consistent within misogyny? Mm, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I feel like that's, it's partly misogyny, right? And also I think Ariel Levy's book uh, was more talking, to be fair to her, about kind of um, women who are like quite, famous that like glamour models and porn actresses etc um but when we were uh reading around but obviously she's talking about sex workers as glamour models and porn actresses are um and when we were reading around for the book we were just so struck by the you know the stuff where she's like no no past no no politics no um you know no life of their own or whatever um yeah just because, yeah, I don't know. It, it really epitomizes how, I guess, um, anti-prostitution feminist writers uh, can sort of think that what they're doing is describing patriarchy, but actually what they're doing is also perpetuating it, you know, because she's also saying, like, it's easy to read that as her kind of saying those things about women who sell sex or who sell sexuality in some way in public, Um yeah. Well, why do you think it is? What explains 
why we don't give voice to sex workers, even when the subject is sex work. It doesn't really seem to make sense. It's like talking to, you know, uh, Klansmen about uh, rights for African-Americans. It doesn't really make sense to you. What explains why why we don't give voice to sex workers, even when that's the subject? Right. I mean, I guess like, you know, being someone who's known to sell sex is very, you know, discrediting because um, and it's sort of it's sort of um, hard to tell which comes first, the stigma against prostitutes uh, versus the sense that prostitutes are drawn from populations um, who our society already, you know, stigmatizes and discredits. So, you know, women, LGBTQ people, people of color, drug users, undocumented migrants, you know, sex workers are disproportionately drawn from all these groups. And of course, people with multiple uh, identities that overlap within those groups. Um, and and then and then sex work in itself becomes another reason to dismiss uh, to dismiss them. Um, so yeah, it's kind of this like vicious circle. A really vicious circle. Um, so is the sex is the reason that the sex workers movement that it's not already included within other radical social justice movements? Is it is it simply? that this is seen as a practical, pragmatic, political move by human rights groups so as not to associate with sex workers but because it could be unpopular. And if that is the case, what does that say about the human rights movement, about the social justice movement today, if they're making practical, pragmatic decisions not to include sex workers within their fight for rights? Yeah, I think it is partly that. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, um, a city in Scotland was running uh, an event for um, World HIV Day, World AIDS Day, and they invited Scott Pet, one of the sex work organisations that I'm involved with, um, to like potentially come along and maybe maybe have the opportunity to speak. Um, but they also like very. Um, uh, very kind of contradictorily, were very anxious that we like to know exactly how we were going to talk about sex work and were we going to talk about sex work and were we going to be seen as promoting sex work and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like so, so bizarre that the HIV movement, which, um, you know, is is so linked in many ways to the struggles of prostitutes' rights, was, was, has become like, was, was so gentrified in this Scottish city that like, and so kind of managerial and kind of NGO, NGOified that the idea of like, they, they sort of felt they had to invite prostitutes, but they also felt incredibly anxious about it. And like, really were like, you can't talk about sex work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like the wider left, um, uh, the issue of prostitution, um, kind of understandably raises really strong feelings. Um, you know, as we write in the book, really kind of sex is complicated and work is bad. And um, people often kind of, it's like it's like where they would be critical of cops on other issues. People often think, oh my God, prostitution is so bad. It's so horrible. Um, you know, more policing must fix this. Um and like even you get that even in quite like left wing radical spaces. So kind of a big um, a big struggle for sex workers uh, on the left is to try and get other um, kind of leftist organisers to understand that when we're saying you know the police harm us and what we need are you know rights and justice that isn't dependent on policing. 
um, that we're not making kind of somehow kind of quite like neoliberal demands. So like sex workers are often caricatured as like somehow being supportive of the market or supportive of capitalism when we're saying we want workers' rights, we want economic justice, we want gender justice. Yeah, your book is fascinating. You you write, many people want to stop us from selling sex or fix the world so we don't need to or just ensure they don't have to look at us. But we are notoriously hard to get rid of, at least through criminal law. Can the world be, quote unquote, fixed so sex work is no longer in demand? And, and, And how much does the belief that the world can be fixed so we don't need sex work lead to the criminalization of sex work, whether the believer supports criminalization of sex work or not? Yeah, I mean, I think Juno and I both do think that the world can be fixed um, so that people largely don't have to sell sex anymore. Um, It's just that there is this kind of tendency um, to kind of like, yeah, to short circuit it or to to reach for what feels like the easy option, which is policing. Um, But I think, you know, in the book, one of the things we come back to again and again is the idea that, like, if you know, people sell sex to get the resources they need. If everybody had the resources they need, you know, a, a stable income, safe, secure housing, um, healthcare, you know, the right to work and have workers' rights and safety, uh, regardless of your immigration status, um, you know, access to the to the drugs that you potentially need, um, you know, if everyone had all those things. Um, then they wouldn't have to sell sex in order to in order to get them. Um, so, you know, in a sense, we both think that the sex industry actually can largely be abolished. We just don't think that they, that can be done by funding police departments uh, or funding um, border security. Um, I don't think that people realize to what degree... Uh, sex workers are policed. You ask, what are the consequences of calling the police or of being visible to them as a gaggle on the street? Uh, What does it mean for a sex worker when their client or manager is afraid of the police? Who is is at risk of deportation and homelessness and why when it comes to policing of sex workers? So how much are sex workers police? Arrest or prostitution are rarely in the news. And there are those who have the impression that it is you know, as police is something as minimal as uh, minimally criminal, like uh, smoking a joint in public, and that you just get a ticket and a fine, and you're told to, you know, be on your way, and that's it. So, how aggressively is prostitution police as a, uh, policed as a sex worker who has witnessed this? Right. So that was like definitely one of the things we really, you know, wanted to kind of use this space that we had in the book to talk about in a really granular way, because obviously, you know, we talk about a load of different jurisdictions. So like in the US, for example, prostitution is much more aggressively policed than uh, in the UK um, and, you know, policed in different ways. You know, the policing of sex work manifests differently in Amsterdam, uh, you know, in Cape Town, in Moscow. Um and we wanted to have an opportunity to talk about all those different kinds of things. Um, I think obviously the first thing to say is that like the policing of sex work is uh, hugely dependent on who you are and particularly dependent on race. So white sex workers are not policed in any way the same extent as sex workers of colour or black sex workers. And that's the case regardless of jurisdiction all over the world. The policing of prostitution is used um you know, as a tool of racism, as a tool of racist policing. Um, 
And again, like lots of different other kinds of factors make some sex workers much more vulnerable um, to really catastrophic policing. So uh, undocumented migration status, um, uh, being a mother means that you can potentially like, lose your children, um, all these kinds of things. Um, but also, yeah, I think I think one of the other things that we really wanted to emphasize was um, not only, you know, what kinds of um, harms befall sex workers when we are, you know, targeted by the police or by the criminal legal system, um, but also the kinds of harms that befall sex workers uh, where, when we have to take steps to avoid that targeting. So, you know, in the UK, uh, it's legal for one sex worker to work alone in a flat. But if you work with a friend, uh, you can both be arrested and charged with brothel keeping the other. Um, so obviously that means that some people are arrested and charged with that every year, and that's disproportionately migrants, in particular the UK police, like really strongly target migrant sex workers with that law. Um, but like it's not the harms of that law aren't just the people who are arrested and charged, although obviously they suffer a horrible, horrifying brunt of it. Uh, it's also that most like so many people have to work alone because they fear arrest you know and working alone makes sex workers obviously really vulnerable to violent clients so we're constantly having to choose between fear of arrest versus fear of violent clients that is just stunning and i'm so glad that you wrote this book because that way i'd have a better perspective on this i'm so glad that finally somebody is allowing sex workers to give their own voice we've had like i said in the past we've had several sex workers on the show and it's always very mm-hmm. refreshing when people who are silenced by the mainstream corporate establishment media actually have access to the media you quote feminist mm-hmm. writer kate millet noting that feminist rhetoric suggests that all women are prostitutes that marriage is prostitution and you write that in 1977 the sex worker led collective pros program for reform of the law on solicitation wrote that it wanted the women's liberation movement to think about the whole thing, prostitution, and discuss it, but not just use it, explaining that the women's movement has used the word prostitute in a really nasty way about housewives to some of their idea of the exploded, exploited situation of women. They noted that this interest in the metaphorical uses of prostitute, as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, was not accompanied by much practical support for sex workers' effects or efforts to tackle criminalization. Is prostitution then not the site of exploitation that feminists have made it out to be? Is making it a site of exploitation, in your opinion, even potentially anti-feminist? No, I mean, so prostitution absolutely is a site of exploitation and harm. You know, it's a site of patriarchal exploitation. It's a site of uh, white supremacist harm. It's a site of capitalist exploitation. Um, And we totally empathize with other feminists who you know, kind of, in our view, correctly identify those things in the sex industry. Um, It's just that we don't think that policing uh, and the criminal legal system can make that better. In fact, we think that that makes those harms worse. Um, But yeah, I mean, to kind of slightly return to the beginning of your question in terms of like the the way uh, the wider feminist movement uses uh, the term prostitute, I think there's something really key in that in how non-prostitute women um, are very kind of invested in talking about prostitution because, you know, it's this really richly kind of symbolic terrain where our feelings about womanhood and masculinity and patriarchy and money and power, you know, all kind of coalesce. 
in this space where you talk about the prostitutes, um, you know, and the prostitute therefore, like the prostitute woman comes to symbolize, uh, you know, the harms inflicted on all women under patriarchy. Um, and, but kind of almost paradoxically, that doesn't lead to solidarity with prostitutes. Um, it leads to uh, sex workers be, you know, it leads to other feminist women, uh, you know, arguing for various kinds of criminalization of the sex industry, um, you know, because they want to kind of push it out of sight because because what it symbolizes for them is women's subjugation. And that's that's true. Um, but policing doesn't solve that. <laughs> policing makes it worse. And you write that in the mid-19th century, as middle-class women emerged into the public sphere of the professions, a new kind of role was invented, which married the ideal values and attributes of middle-class femininity to paid employment. In part, this can be thought of as a feminist project, as the alleged moral superiority of these women justified their taking a more public role in society, including working outside the home, the legal right to own property, the vote, so on, but the creation of professionalized caring roles such as philanthropic and social work was about employment that reproduced rather than upset gender roles. These women were reasserting their position in a class hierarchy over working class people, particularly working class women and children who were targeted as recipients for maternalistic and coercive forms of care. Is there a disconnect between women's rights and sex worker rights movements based on class? Do they not find common ground because middle-class feminism views sex workers as lower class and in need of care and maternalism? Um, Yes. I mean, I think there certainly is a huge conflict um, within feminism over sex worker rights. And and there has been, you know, as as we kind of detail and as the extracts you just read details, since kind of at least what we might call the first wave of feminism, so like the kind of Victorian era. Um, I think, I think you know, obviously, and obviously we would argue that sex worker rights are women's rights. So like to us, there is there is not a conflict. Um, um, and yeah, and, and to me, it feels like the sex worker rights movement is, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a kind of, it's obviously part of the feminist movement. Um, so that conflict, the way in which it's so fraught, the way in which, you know, um, the relationship of sex workers to uh, the wider feminist movement is so fraught, um, is really is really kind of painful for a lot of sex workers, I think. Um, uh, yeah, and one of the things that we really found in writing the book was that it gave us the space to um, kind of try and emphasise with other strands of feminism um to yeah because ultimately we found that we did have you know we did have sympathy with kind of uh where like pro-criminalization feminism comes from like as i as i talked about earlier you know we kind of agree that the sex industry is a site of all these different kinds of harms uh it's just as i keep saying we don't think that the police can fix that um you know and conversely we're also quite critical of um some kinds of liberal feminism that in our view also have a kind of too simplistic view on prostitution um which is you know kind of almost too celebratory um so we sort of feel like liberal feminists are correct in identifying uh that a large part of why the prostitute woman is stigmatized is because she's having sex that is deemed you know non-normative um 
and you know and therefore they link that uh that kind of sex like non-normative sex to other kinds of non-normative sex whether that's you know sex that seems promiscuous or queer sex or you know all those other kinds of things um but it's not enough to simply kind of celebrate prostitution in the ways that we might celebrate quote-unquote promiscuity or or queer sex between women um because unlike those other two things uh prostitution is a really direct economic relation and that's why we need a kind of anti-capitalist analysis uh rather than just saying sex is good because actually sex is complicated and work is bad and cops are bad (laughs) right and let's get to the cops are bad thing just for a second here because uh you write that laws are not just messaging they are what the police are permitted to do in the world what are police permitted to do to sex workers that non-sex workers may not know? What does the law allow cops to do to prostitutes that may surprise those who are not sex workers? Right. Okay, good question. And I mean, that sort of comes back to uh, what we're talking about in terms of um, the way in which non-prostitute women um, use the idea of the prostitute as this kind of wider symbol or like metaphor for women's experiences under patriarchy. And then what's so fascinating about that is that when sex workers interject to not only say that policing is harmful, but to talk specifically about what kinds of harms policing brings to our lives, we're seen as like presenting this kind of weird obsession with detail, you know, that it's almost like irrelevant. It's like, why are you bringing this niche niche issue to, you know, to this great wider discussion about like abstraction? Um, So, I mean, I think, you know, I think the just the reality of of police of the policing of sex work is so invisible in so many ways. So again, like you know, the fear that I talked about earlier in terms of um, you know two women in the UK sharing a flat uh, risk arrest for brothel keeping, and as we write in the book, um, both me and Juno have experienced clients, probably clients, calling up and saying, "Are you working alone today?" and having to juggle in that moment between the fear that this is a perpetrator who's hoping you're going to say, you know, yes, I am working alone so that he can come and rob you or or attack you, um, versus the fear that this is a police officer looking to make an easy arrest that day, uh, you know, looking for you to say, actually, I'm working with a friend. And then, you know, the police officer can turn up and arrest you both. Um yeah, but I mean, also, I think like it's really important again to talk about the way in which immigration law uh, intersects with with prostitution law. So in the UK, um, it's really a kind of complicated legal grey area, even for EU citizens who obviously at present have the legal right to live and work in the UK without um, without any kind of difficulty about their papers. Uh, and it's pretty common, like even even though EU citizens do have that right, I think there's um there's some I can't remember the acronym now, but there's something where you have to demonstrate that you're in education or employment. And obviously, because sex work is cash in hand, you largely can't demonstrate that you're employment in employment. And the police know that perfectly well. And as a result, they target uh, EU migrant sex workers, so like Romanian women, Polish women. Um, and they issue them with deportation notices. Uh, they will often um, confiscate passports, and they will only give the passport back when someone comes down to the police station uh, with the one-way ticket, um, you know, back to their country of origin. 
you know, they, they will really aggressively use immigration law against migrants, um, you know, because they're prostitutes. So it, it is the problem then with sex work, the police can police reform lead to safety and improved economic conditions for sex workers, or does sex work have to be decriminalized, even legalized, in order for there to be better safety conditions for sex workers? So the police are certainly a key problem in terms of safety for sex workers. Um, And also, of course, capitalism uh, is another huge problem. Um, And and borders are another huge problem. So, like, I think um, when it comes to prostitution law, there is a real tendency to get fixated on the idea of the kind of silver bullets that will, uh, that will, you know, cure everything. And um, kind of feminists who support a law called the Nordic Model that um, me and you know and all, all other sex rights activists are really critical of because it harms people who sell sex. You know, I think one of the things that they're doing is they are... Um, like fixating on this idea of of one kind of legal model as like a legal fix when actually what Juno and I wanted to do in Revolting Prostitutes is to say that yes of course you know the legal system uh, and therefore what the police are permitted to do to prostitutes is a huge problem and that's why sex workers absolutely need decriminalization but decriminalization has to only be it can only be seen as part of a wider puzzle that has to include uh, you know, resistance to capitalism, resistance to borders, resistance to white supremacy, um, you know, changes to drug law. Um, yeah, all these all these different kinds of things, because sex workers, um, you know, face so many different kinds of struggles. You write anti-prostitution feminist Catherine McKinnon even writes with ambivalent approval of a brief jail time for prostitutes on the basis that jail can be a respite from the pimps and the street. She quotes like-minded feminists who argue that jail is the closest thing many women in prostitution have to a battered women's shelter, and that considering the absence of any other refuge or shelter, jail provides a temporary safe haven. How safe are sex workers in jail? Are they more safe in jails than on the streets? No, of course not. I mean, no one is safer in jail than on the street. Like, this is obviously an absurdity. Um, You know, jail is in itself a form of violence. There are so many other kinds of violence that are inflicted on people who are incarcerated. Um, You know, thinking of the US, uh, there's been um, kind of multiple sex workers who uh, have died in the prison system. I'm thinking of Marsha Powell, who was left out um, in the Arizona sun and died without any water for many hours and died of third-degree burns uh, as a real fat. So I'm thinking of um, a woman called April Brogan, who was allowed to um, uh, uh, go into withdrawal in a Florida jail and died as a result of that. You know, and those are just kind of the first two names that spring to mind. Again, like so many sex workers in the U.S., are um, criminalised and incarcerated for self-defence. So I'm thinking of Alicia Walker, um, uh, who comrades in Chicago are kind of organising around supporting her and trying to get her out. She uh, uh, killed a client in self-defence. Her and a a friend, a colleague who were working together, were both attacked by this man. And to save both their lives, she had to kill him. 
And for that, she has been incarcerated uh, and is facing, you know, a multi-decade long jail term. Um, you know, that's like stories like that are so, so common. Obviously, um, Sintoya Brown uh, was just granted clemency. Um, but it's absolutely routine for sex workers all over the US um, and, of course, other women as well to be criminalized and incarcerated for self-defense um you know the the prison industrial system is just this huge industrialization of gender-based violence of violence against people people of color of violence against poor people um it can't be made safe it has to be abolished you write contemporary feminist disapproval of prostitution remains unmoored from pragmatism. More political energy goes to obstructing sex work than to what is really needed, such as helping sex workers avoid prosecution or ensuring viable alternative livelihoods that are more than respectable drudgery. Is sex work better than respectable drudgery? Often, yes. Uh so <laughs> we further on in the book, in the work chapter, we quote quite a few sex workers. Um, and one, th- one of the things I really like about that section of that chapter, in fact, is the way in which other people's voices really come through very strongly. So um, there's a woman we quote uh, who's based in Cape Town where she says something like, um, you know, I got so sick of cleaning other people's um bloody houses you know you know for pittance and I just couldn't do it anymore and that's my turn to sex work um or I think we also quote a sex worker from the 1920s arrested in the UK um who who kind of sarcastically demanded the police officers arresting her discuss with her like you know the contrasting amounts she could earn working in a you know in a laundry or as a maid servant versus working as a sex worker um and it's really striking as well that, uh, I guess, for anti-prostitution feminists, um, partly because they're not thinking about prostitution as a response to material needs. Um, so they're thinking of it as this kind of, only this kind of abject horror. And so for them, almost anything is better, right? So like, they're not thinking um, about, you know, women who are single mothers who have to find work that's relatively well paid, that fits around their childcare. Um, you know, they're not thinking about people who maybe are, you know, disabled and who like struggle to work a kind of quote unquote normal work week. Um, and really often the uh, alternatives to prostitution that are offered to sex workers are just so so economically inadequate um you know it's pretty common for people to just kind of be derisively told like oh just go into the benefit system as if the benefit system in the uk isn't you know incredibly punitive incredibly abusive um you know incredibly hard to access uh you know loads of people get into sex work fleeing from the benefit system uh not the other way around um and I think if people thought harder about the fact that sex work is about material needs, um, then that would lead to responses which were, you know, took a more holistic uh, approach to people's material needs um, and weren't so kind of derisory and uh, dismissive of the kinds of problems that sex workers have in our lives that lead us into prostitution.
Sure, material needs, economic conditions, you might be able to find common ground with others on those concerns. But to what extent do you believe worker safety as the top priority for sex worker rights can create the empathy for sex workers uh, by the public that you hope your writing can promote? Uh, Can that kind of uh, uh, concern or prioritization of worker safety, especially in the light of the biggest threat being the police, can that lead to intersectionality, common ground with anti-police violence movements like the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, absolutely. I think, certainly I think for um, organizations um, and campaigners who are focused on things like police violence, uh, that's a really natural um, kind of space of solidarity. And I think sex workers find it very um, kind of rewarding to, to you know participate in building solidarity there. Um, I think so. I think a lot of people uh, kind of are very find it easy to empathise with the idea of workers' rights, which is great, of course. Um, especially when you explain things like how the law currently forces people to work alone or to risk arrest. You know, people find it very easy to understand that that, you know, is a contradiction, that that promotes violence against sex workers. Um, I think, you know, we're obviously kind of collectively taught that, you know, the police are, um, uh, you know, that the police are good. You know, we're, the media, for example, is constantly bombarding us with, with the idea that, you know, when the police um, harm someone, it's a quote-unquote officer-involved shooting or whatever. You know, like all these like obfuscations are used to hide, to hide the facts of police violence, um, to hide the facts that police in our communities uh, don't tend to make us more safe, and certainly don't make us more safe if we're people of colour or working-class people or drug users or undocumented migrants. Um, so I think um, in some ways. Uh, the kind of person on the street uh, hopefully finds it easy to empathise with the idea of workers' rights and workers' safety, um, and that that being a key demand for the sex worker rights movement. Um, I think depending on who the person on the street is, they might um, need a bit more time uh, to think about how the police are, you know, drivers of harm and exploitation and violence rather than the solution to it. Um, but that's okay. I feel like, uh, or, you know. Um, movements like Black Lives Matter have really like hugely shifted that conversation on in really impressive ways in the last five, 10 years. Um, and that conversation feels like it's um, kind of growing and deepening all the time. What do you mean when you write sex workers are the original feminists? How are sex workers the original feminists? Um, I mean, partly, of course, that's um, us. Uh, being controversial um and you know and make like sex workers as i mentioned before have such a kind of fraught place within the feminist movement that it feels really powerful to rather than kind of apologize for and explain our presence to just like bowl in and be like we're the original feminists actually um but i think uh what we're talking about when we uh write that um we're thinking about kind of early forms of worker organization um, and obviously, because sex workers are disproportionately women and have been kind of throughout history, um, kind of workers' organisation and organisation amongst women, uh, when it comes to sex workers, are, are inseparable. The two things come together. Um, 
So we talk about sex workers in the kind of 14th and 15th century in medieval Europe, um, you know, protesting against against brothel closures. We talk about um, sex workers in Ireland in the 16th century, I think, uh, yeah, 16th, 18th century, um, uh, kind of banding together to share childcare, to share incomes. Um, we talk about uh, sex workers in uh, colonial Nigeria, again, like kind of forming these financial ties to each other so that like, you know, within these communities, women would all just pitch in to look after each other um, because sex worker organizing has never been separable from mutual aid, right? Like um, it, it obviously makes sense that you would protest uh, an attempt to worsen the conditions in your workplace together. And you would also, um, you know, share childcare or share healthcare costs um, together. And, you know, that means working together as a community of women, um, so that's sort of what we're talking about when we talk about sex workers, the original feminists. And you mentioned that writer Janice Raymond stated that prostitution is rape that's paid for, while while sociologist Kathleen Berry said buying and selling sex was destructive of human life. What impact do statements and views like these have on the safety concerns and economic conditions faced every day by sex workers? So... Um, I guess what's particularly painful about the idea that all sex work is intrinsically rape is the way in which it makes it impossible for sex workers to name the actual sexual violence that happens to us at work. Um, you know, obviously, as a current sex worker, I know and I'm so intensely aware of the difference between a client who is respectful, who, you know, stays within my boundaries, who uh who doesn't assault me and a client who does like that that difference is so real to me every single day every single day I'm thinking about how to you know try and ensure I get the first kind of client and not the second kind of client um whereas you know for uh another feminist to then say well all of it is rape it's like well how how can sex workers talk meaningfully about the things that make us more or less safe if in that case, if all sex work is rape, then, you know, a client that rapes us is exactly the same as a client who doesn't. And how can you talk about, you know, this law uh, forces me to work alone, this law forces me to compromise my screening strategies, um, you know, this law forces me to rush um, rush my initial interaction with a client where I might be screening him. You know, all of those things really meaningfully impact on our day-to-day safety, and they all are totally obscured and, like, made worthless by statements like all sex work is rape. And you write how former prostitute Andrea Dworkin's work uh, became highly influential in the movement and set a new tone for criticism of sex work. In the book, uh, or she writes... uh, the prostitute lives the literal reality of being the dirty woman. There is no metaphor. She is the woman covered in dirt, which is to say that every man who has ever been on top of her has left a piece of himself behind. She is perceived as treated as, and I want you to remember this this is real, vaginal slime. You add her confrontational writing style and her experiences in the sex trade help to legitimize and normalize similar usage of graphic and misogynist language in feminist discussions of sex workers and their bodies. Is criticism of sex workers 
and sex work necessarily misogynist? And if not, what makes Dworkin's critique misogynist? Um, I mean, obviously, criticism of sex workers isn't necessarily misogynist. Um, you know, like, it's perfectly common, for example, to encounter white sex workers who are also racist. Like, naming that as such isn't misogynist. Um, equally, it's perfectly possible to sort of criticise sex work uh, without being misogynist. Um, you know, in the book, Juno and I are very critical of sex work. Um, we're certainly not pro-sex work. Um uh, I guess the difficulty comes where, um, you know, that there is this very, there's this very kind of graphic, very like visceral language that really focuses in on like the kind of disgusting, abject body of the sex worker, um, and you know, Dworkin in a sense uh, is a bit of a complicated case because she obviously also had experiences in the sex trade, so. Um, you know, uh, her proponents can kind of point to that and say, you know, she was also drawing on her own experiences, which, you know, to an extent is legit, right, fine. But like, as as we say, like that, that kind of language then kind of legitimizes, um, you know, really, really kind of vile misogynist language about sex workers, um, you know, from other feminists, either kind of repeating what men have said or kind of imagining what they think misogynist men might say about sex workers and then kind of quite gleefully saying it um and then and then calling that feminist analysis um and ultimately you know i think you can i think you can absolutely criticize sex work um without without kind of drilling down on the kind of what, what you perceive as the disgustingness of the sex that sex workers have or you know the disgustingness of our bodies um and if you can't criticize sex work without doing that then um your criticisms are probably really garbage how much you know there's this whole idea of rescuing women from prostitution how much does seeing sex workers as in need of being rescued, how does that affect the way one views sex workers and more importantly, sex workers' rights? Because, you know, we have this huge thing today about uh, human and sex trafficking. That seems to be a gigantic campaign campaign that I would think have some similarities with this idea of rescuing women from prostitution. So is viewing sex workers as in need of being uh, rescued somehow sexist or misogynist in some way? Well, I think... When people talk about rescue, you've got to ask a bit more closely what they mean, right? So, like, in general, when we talk about rescue uh, from prostitution or from, quote-unquote, sex trafficking, which is, you know, there's so much on, under that phrase. There's just this huge kind of swirling morass of different meanings. Um, but when we talk about rescue from either of those situations, 99.9% of the time, what we mean is uh, arrest. <laughs> Um, so sex workers will be arrested and, you know, and that will bring all the force of the criminal legal system into their lives. Uh, so, you know, as we've discussed, you know, if someone is a drug user, they'll potentially be criminalized for that, or they will be left to withdraw in jail as a result of that. You know, if someone is a mother, they will potentially lose custody of their kids. If someone is a undocumented or semi-documented migrant, they will often, um, face deportation. And again, like when it comes to sex trafficking, which again, I'm putting quote marks around, um, again, 99.9% of what we talk about 
uh, in terms of rescue from sex trafficking means deportation. It means your money will be confiscated, you'll be taken to a deportation centre, you'll be held there for a period of weeks or months indefinitely, uh, and then you'll be deported. Um, so I think if we were more precise when we talked about rescue and said, you know, it means it means arrest, and that means potentially losing whatever civilian job you have, potentially losing custody of your kids, um, you know, it means potentially like not be, ever being able to get a civilian job ever again because you've got this arrest record for prostitution. Um, you know, it means being deported. It means having all your money taken. That um, we would have a more precise idea of what the problem with rescue is. So, uh, Kate Millett, you write how Kate Millett recalled a feminist conference on prostitution held in 1971 when disgruntled working women arrived to demand a seat at the table. Millett writes, the title of the day's program was inscribed on leaflets for our benefit towards the elimination of prostitution. The panel of experts included everyone but prostitutes. All hell broke loose between between the prostitute and the movement because against all likelihood, prostitutes did in fact attend the conference. What explains the presumption by non-sex workers that sex workers, against all likelihood, would actually attend a feminist conference on prostitution when, in fact, sex workers are and have been very active politically within feminism and other social movements for centuries? Yeah, I mean, I guess because, you know, the prostitute woman is kind of so rich as a symbol, um, it's almost surprising to people when we turn up and aren't actually symbols. We're, you know, real, flawed, living, breathing, individual human beings. Um, you know, and we turn up and speak. And that is that's really surprising to people. Um, yeah. Uh, you also write that your writing is not about empowerment. It's not salacious. Does your work receive, has it received the curiosity and discussion that sex work normally receives in popular culture journalism and policy or is it more ignored than say a book that would be confessions of a sex worker oh yeah it's been much more ignored than that (laughs) um which is i mean fine the reaction that we've had has been amazing um you know uh yeah we're really really grateful to all the many people who have read it and who have told us um you know what they think about the book um but yeah absolutely is striking that um like lots of people uh who i think and hope we discuss with um some kind of generosity and nuance in the book even though ultimately we obviously strongly disagree with them um have not kind of engaged with with the text at all which is fine um but i think there is a tendency when sex workers are raising problems that kind of pro-criminalization feminists find it hard to answer so when we're saying you know actually the criminalization of prostitution um you know means that we can be arrested for working together it means that you know police raids on our workplaces mean that migrant sex workers are more likely to be deported you know all this kind of stuff um obviously that doesn't really fit in with their politics because although they're pro-criminalization they also consider themselves to be feminists so they don't they you know claim not to want women in prostitution to be harmed as a result of the policies that they advocate for um but because they don't really have an answer to those problems because those things are really inextricable from the criminalization of prostitution you know if you criminalize prostitution uh you bring all the harms of the criminal legal system into the lives of prostitutes like that is 
that is will stop what happens. Um, they don't really respond at all. They it, like they kind of ignore those um, those criticisms um, or those problems that we're raising. And instead, the sex worker rights movement gets really caricatured as, you know, advocating for sex worker rights on the basis that we think sex work is amazing or that it's, you know, empowering or that we love it and we've chosen it, which actually, you know, obviously in any broad, diverse movement, you can find people advocating almost anything. Um, but, but overall, that is a a very um, kind of outrageous caricature of what the sex worker rights movement as a whole is saying, Um, you know, because what the sex worker rights movement as a whole is saying um, is things like the police are harming our communities. Uh, You know, we can't achieve economic justice or gender-based justice through criminalization. Um, You know, policing in prisons and immigration can't keep us safe. Um, And those politics kind of, it's like they kind of just, disappear under the waves um and instead there's this there's this straw man of the prostitute talking about how much she loves her job and she gets she gets a lot of um kind of press time um and the kind of more complex more real criticisms that sex workers make of capitalism and of policing and of white supremacy and of borders um don't don't get much attention at all. You write stuck in the domain of sex and whether it is good or bad for women and adamant that it could only be one or the other. It was all too easy for feminists to think of the prostitute only in terms of what she represented to them. They claimed ownership of sex worker experiences in order to make sense of their own experiences. What do you mean by the claiming ownership of sex worker experiences in order to make sense of their own experiences? So I guess this comes back to um, a section you quoted earlier in terms of um, the idea of the, you know, the prostitute symbolizes um, the exploited position of the housewife. Um, you know, she she comes to symbolize the position of all women under patriarchy. Um, and again, like, as I, you know, that contradictorily, that doesn't produce uh, solidarity with prostitutes. It kind of produces the sense that our lives are available to be kind of plundered as metaphor um, by non-prostitute women. Um, And when we actually speak up about the material conditions that we face and the solutions that we need, um, we're seen as kind of almost like interrupting this conversation, which is paradoxically seen as having nothing to do with us, uh, you know, that's much more kind of highfalutin and about, about, you um, you know, these kind of abstractions about, uh, the harms that women experience on the patriarchy and the actual granular harms that sex workers experience as a result of the criminalization of prostitution um, can therefore be ignored or dismissed or swept under the rug or treated as a distraction. We have been speaking with Molly Smith. She is co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes. The Fight for Sex Worker writes, you can find out more about an organization that she works with, Swarm, Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement, by going to swarmcollective.org. She also works with Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity based in Edinburgh, which is working to decriminalize sex work in Scotland. You can find out more about that group by going to scott-pep.org.uk. And you can follow Molly on Twitter at pasta chips. One last question for you, Molly, and it's the same thing we do with all of our guests. We ask our final question, which is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. 
or our audience is going to hate your response. And I really just don't know if this is going to fall in any of those categories. To what extent <laughs> does the way you view the police, either as protector or as punisher, inform feminist politics or any and all politics for that matter? Is the divide in our current debate between whether criminalization and policing is the best societal collect, uh, corrective or whether welfare is the appropriate solution? Is, is the big debate, should we feed the poor or imprison them? Yes. I mean, I think in terms of feminist politics, that is a huge and very key dividing line. Um, you know, and, and absolutely not just about sex work, although obviously, you know, sex work is a key iteration of this divide, you know, are the police um, protectors or punishers, you know, it comes up really strikingly, uh, even in abortion politics in the UK. So um, an anti-prostitution feminist uh, MP um, that I'm aware of uh, recently wrote back to a a constituent saying that she supported the continued criminalisation of some forms of abortion in the UK, um, precisely because she believed that that would protect women. Um, and of course, that's that's such a contradiction because the criminalisation of those forms of abortion in the UK leads to some women being jailed for abortion. Like, that doesn't protect women. Um, <laughs> and, and it's just, like, it's absolutely fascinating how, um, you know, how much feminist energy goes into kind of attempting to further criminalise horrible things like street harassment, which is obviously, you know, horrendous. Um, and which no one supports, but which um, and you know, and but which kind of draws so much energy away from um, other kinds of campaigns. You know, whether that's around like safe housing or around women's economic independence, um, or even around kind of challenging police violence. Um, and I mean, I don't want to mischaracterise the feminist movement in the UK. There's like a really vibrant, thriving grassroots feminist movement that is really concerned with you know, with economics and with police violence and with, like, safety in a much more broad holistic holistic term. Um, But absolutely, in terms of, like, kind of uh, governance feminism, perhaps, there's this real emphasis on the the idea that the police are are kind of the people that can deliver feminist justice. Um, And that's such a key dividing line uh, in terms of feminism. Molly, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. Molly Smith is co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. And it's something that everybody should read because we so rarely get to hear the voice of sex workers, even when we're talking about sex work. Makes no freaking sense. Thank you so much, Molly. I really appreciate you being on the show. All right. So I have to deal with the technical difficulties. So I am now tossing to Alex. Oh, hey, everyone. It's uh, Alex talking to you while Chuck is running to deal with a technical difficulty in the bathroom. There's actually one thing I've been meaning to say on the radio, so I'm glad I have this moment to say it. Uh, This is Hell Needs Webmaster Help, I think is what I'm looking for. Uh, We have accounts all over the place. We have uh, feeds all over the place. I don't know who has rights to all our uh, website addresses. I'm not even explaining this very well because I don't know what I'm doing. But... Uh, the good thing is we uh, have Patreon money to help. So we have a little bit of a budget. And if you are a webmaster or if you can help get our digital assets in order, uh, we would really appreciate that. So if you can get in touch with Alex at thisishell.com, Alex at thisishell.com, email me if you know what, more about what I'm talking about than I'm doing a bad job of explaining. That's Alex at thisishell.com. All righty. 
technical difficulty fix. This is hell where we put people before profits. Turns out to be an awful business model. A global campaign against climate change has been launched that advocates for better governance and an abrupt change from our fossil fuel addiction in order to alleviate the worst aspects of abrupt climate change. And it's coming to the states real soon, that is, this global movement. We'll hear all about the new Extinction Rebellion when we speak to one of its founders, Claire Farrell, in just a bit. Claire recently posted the Guardian article, BBC has a key role in tackling the climate emergency. All right, let me catch my breath from running back and forth in a very technical room. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits. God, we're so stupid. On Patreon this week, as I've been saying this week, I apologize to America because apparently I've been rude and overly harsh in the country where I was born, raised, and despite my best efforts, still reside. But you can only hear that apology in its entirety at patreon.com slash thisishell. We also shared our interview uh, with uh, our first interview ever with Astra Taylor, who you may know from her work with Neutral Milk Hotel, or you may know her from her book, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age, or you may know her from her documentary Zizek, or you might know Astra from being on our show several times. In a blatant attempt to suck up to Astra so we can have her back on our show in May, when her new book drops, which will be titled Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone, we shared our 2006 interview with Astra Taylor. But again, you can only hear that and another 150-plus Patreon podcasts we have done already, each featuring a new monologue for me and a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online, by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. Special thanks to... Joining us on Patreon to Christian, Tom, Sarah, Benjamin, Ben, Luke, Kendra, Josh, Alexandra, Scott, and Steve. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. Uh, We now have 322 subscribers to our Patreon podcast, so that means all we need is 3,660 more to meet our goal. And you can help us get closer to that goal by going to patreon.com slash this is hell on next week's patreon podcast i'll have another new monologue exclusively for our patreon patrons and we'll be sharing the latest installment of our patreon only series and oral history of the iraq wars it happened here live on this is hell next week interview will be we'll be sharing our interview from uh, october 20th 2007 a conversation with paul crickshank who uh, was on to discuss an article he wrote with the uh, past guest peter bergen entitled al-qaeda Self-fulfilling prophecy, Bush administration propaganda notwithstanding, Al-Qaeda was not a factor in Iraq before the U.S. invasion. But you can only hear next week's exclusive Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. I also want to thank everybody for coming out to our annual This Is Hell holiday office party uh, in December. We had a really great time. It was great to see a lot of people out there. Finally meet Anna's boyfriend. Awesome seeing so many listeners at the party. And the food truck from Three-Legged Tacos was incredible. And thanks, everybody, who drops by office hours at Carrie's Lounge. That happened every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, and get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, there's a potentially new global challenge to climate change. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. 
we'll hopefully get to te- uh, twist off knowledge. Uh, we got some. Uh, we got the question from Hell. We got listener feedback. And what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. An international campaign to finally confront climate change was recently launched in the UK, and it's coming to the US. Here to tell us what it's all about and what makes this campaign different, activist and co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Claire Farrell. Welcome to This Is Hell, Claire. Hello. You can find out more about Extinction Rebellion at rebellion.earth. You can follow Extinction Rebellion on Twitter at ExtinctionR and the hashtag Extinction Rebellion. Claire recently posted the Guardian article, BBC has a key role in tackling the uh, climate emergency. Follow Claire on Twitter at Claire Totty, T-O-T-T-Y. Extinction Rebellion is an international nonviolent resistance and social movement that demands radical change to rein in species extinction and avoid a climate collapse. Part of Extinction Rebellion's strategy is mass arrest. At the protests that erupted throughout London in November, one Extinction Rebellion activist said, we can't get arrested quick enough. Why mass arrest, Claire? Why is that seen as an effective strategy to raise awareness of climate change and mass extinction? Okay. Um, a, a lot of people want to hear about the uh, the proposal for, for mass arrest. And I think um, it's important to remember that uh, what happens when people show that they're willing to forego their liberty for a cause is uh, that they they make it absolutely clear uh, that they really really mean they really really mean what they what they're saying, and they and they really mean to live uh, by those by those values to stand up for what they believe in. Um, it's uh, Self-sacrifice is very useful in uh, movement. You, you find historically um, when people when people are uh, oppressed, arrested, uh, all the rest of it, you, you tend to see um, a surge in support for those people. Um, that certainly happened in the UK recently when some people were sent to prison um, over a protest outside of packing sites in the northwest of the UK, um, following that uh, conviction and sentencing, uh, I think there were a thousand people went to uh, visit the site. Um, so there, there, are, there are many kind of uh, moral, I suppose, and material uh, uses in, in this uh, context. Um, and if you were just being ruthlessly empirical, uh, a researcher among us who who would say there aren't there aren't successful movements that don't involve uh, vast numbers of arrests. So um, so yeah, there's there's lots of reasons why. And of course, if you're going to commit to a campaign of civil disobedience, then that usually means breaking the law, which means you're at risk of arrest. So uh, yeah, the whole thing kind of hangs together um, rather like that. You mentioned uh, actions against fracking. How much do you think the expansion of fracking in the UK led to or provoked the Extinction Rebellion movement? How much do you think that has played a role in people's uh, rising awareness of the uh, impact that fossil fuel exploitation and extraction is having on the environment? I think the fact that the UK is exploring for hard-to-reach fossil fuels is... uh... It's, it is important because we can see 
the threat to our own landscape, which quite often um, uh, we don't we don't see uh, we don't regularly get reminded of, of the impact, uh, the physical sort of like presence of fossil fuel extraction. Um, I think it's also um, comes at a time when uh, there's there's really no debate on the science and there's really no question um, for the majority of people who are concerned about the future that exploring for natural gas in that way is is um, not only poses a threat to the local communities and their water supplies and we have problems with radioactive waste and all these other kind of direct environmental issues, then if you sort of add onto that the methane that comes out and, and the fact that really we, we need to be reducing carbon emissions extremely rapidly, the whole thing, yeah, of course, it, it, it kind of, um, maybe it gives people a bit of a kick up the arse. Um, <laughs> Uh, I suppose, yeah. Uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion was started by Roger Hallam, Gail Bradbrook, Simon Bramwell, and other activists from the campaign organization known as Rising Up. Rising Up states at their website uh, that it was formed by activists who have also been part of Compassionate Revolution, Earth First, Occupy, Plan Stupid, Radical Think Tank, and Reclaim the Power, Raising Rising Up is linked to Compassionate Revolution, which was birthed in the Occupy movement. We seek a better, more beautiful world, and we recognize it is both necessary and possible. Within Extinction Rebellion, then, how do you see that legacy of the Occupy protests and actions of 2011? Does it have similar structure or strategy, or is the legacy of Occupation on Extinction Rebellion one more of energy and motivated activists, cultural more than structural or strategic. Because here in the States, immediately, not only during the Occupy Wall Street uh, actions, but immediately afterwards, it was completely dismissed as something that was just a flash in the pan, was finite, ended, and just went away. So how much do you see any lingering legacy of Occupy in Extinction Rebellion? Um, okay, there's several people who are um, who seem to me to be uh, quite dedicated and quite involved who who experienced Occupy and um, and were and were involved in Occupy Democracy um, on Parliament Square in the UK. Um, I think obviously with every iteration of of uh, activist campaign movement, people learn a lot, and um, I feel and I hope that uh the, the the wisdom of people who've who've come through those movements um you know that that, that feeds into the collective intelligence of um of what's happening uh right now with with XR um I also think that although we've um we've done small occupations of uh offices we occupied Greenpeace in the UK um we haven't yet uh, attempted any sort of large-scale occupations of public space. It's not to say that that won't happen. Uh, we just haven't sort of, uh, we just haven't gone there yet, basically, in terms of, in terms of tactics. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, there's a very important um, recognition of the kind of uh, lineage, if you might say that, um, between, between movements and, um, yeah, really trying to work out how to, how to best use the knowledge and experience that we've got, uh, you know, within this within this sort of quite broad group of people. Let's talk about Greenpeace for a second. Why occupy Greenpeace? I think that people <laughs> who are listening, who are not aware of XR, of Extinction Rebellion, 
they might not understand and they may believe that there's nothing different between your organization and Greenpeace. So why occupy Greenpeace? Well, Greenpeace are um, a significantly more radical NGO than the majority of the other ones. So uh, they are probably, I would say that they're much more aligned with our values. They were founded on direct action and um, community organising, which is which is precisely what we've been doing. So we know that we know that their heritage and and their and their sort of beliefs um, are are quite well aligned actually with with what we do. Um, we decided to do it because it seems, and I was very nervous before we <laughs> went to do it because I think there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of people in the sort of radical world that we spoke to about this beforehand, and they all said, "Oh no, you can't do that. That's a terrible thing to do to Greenpeace." There. They're excellent people. You know what you're doing that for. But it it makes sense to me that you go to these people to to ask if they want to help because we face such a grave threat. And and really, we're asking people to tell the truth. It's one of our head, one of our top lines is tell the truth, tell the truth. Well, the truth is the environmental movement uh, is failing catastrophically, and we're headed for um, you know total ecological collapse, which will cause societal collapse. Um, and that's something that the environmental movement needs to be honest with itself about. You know, it's not that they aren't great people that do great things. It's just that the situation is so bad that that the work that we've all been doing collectively so far on this topic is simply not enough. And so we went there with cakes and flowers and a kind of love letter, if you like, that said, Dear Greenpeace, we love you. Um, and we gave them uh, a sort of talk. Or we gave a small lecture uh, through a megaphone to the office and um had a had a very long meeting with them and um yeah and it was super and and it was very well received and they weren't they weren't mad with us they didn't think we were we were being rude we did it in a super loving way um we tried to describe it before we did it as like going to a friend and put your hand on their shoulder and when you say you know I, look mate I really I love you but <laughs> we need to talk about something quite serious uh, that's going on and uh let's just be super honest right now about something that, that, that matters a lot to both of us. So we took that kind of approach, and it's my understanding that, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of developed a, a nice sort of relationship with them. I've seen some of them since uh, we took the bridges, for example, because we occupied them before we really sort of kicked off with any large-scale uh, actions. And they've been super supportive and said, well done, you know, it's great what you've done. And, and it's opened up a really interesting conversation for them internally because I think often for people that work in the NGO sector there's there's conversations they have down the pub which are like um you know this is this is terrifying what what can we do and then there's conversations they have at work which is like here's what we're doing this year here's the campaign strategy for the year and here's how we're going to like go along and do the work but it's you know we wanted them to stop and have a think about the most recent climate data and um you know, see if we could ask for their support if there was going to be a mass mobilisation and a new social movement. We thought, you know, it would be really cool to to go and talk to them about that and see if we could get them to to help in whatever way was possible. So it was all it was all very nice actually. <laughs> uh, and on the on the topic of mass mobilisation, 
uh, the uh, the website um, Extinction Rebellion states that the civil disobe- uh, disobedience we uh, that we feel is able to undertake is limited to small teams of people when it comes to Greenpeace. They're a large NGO with a business model that limits their willingness to mass mobilize people in civil disobedience. The civil disobedience they feel able to undertake is limited to small teams of people. I yeah. I had I, in another life I interviewed for a job at Greenpeace and mm-hmm. I was in a very wealthy neighborhood where their offices were in San Francisco and they were telling me at the time how they were focusing on the NIMBY strategy that is not in my backyard and I remember turning to one of the Greenpeace people and saying well then whose backyard is this pollution going to be done in you know you should just be trying to end whatever environmental problem it is and not trying to make it as a problem of people empowering themselves within their own community and then pushing it off to somebody else. So what does it tell you about Greenpeace when they're not promoting a mass movement? At least I know that they're interested in your movement now and they're talking about it, which is great. But what does it say to you about that? kind? I don't even want to pick on Greenpeace. What does it say to you about activism (laughs) when it doesn't focus on the mass movement that can really make a profound change? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing that we took to them is, uh, you know, among us is is a, is a social scientist, uh, PhD uh, researcher who's who's really um, investigated what what are the ingredients that go in to make radical social change when when movements are successful, and it's mass participation, and it means open organising, and it means normal people doing it so yeah not the elite climbing team going and going up an embassy and dropping a banner it means like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ordinary people just sitting in a road somewhere or doing something that requires relatively um little skill apart from apart from non-violent discipline so it (laughs) seems to me to be important that we continue to speak to greenpeace and also i would love it and i haven't I haven't cleared this with our kind of uh, timings and strategy yet, but I would really love it if we go also to Friends of the Earth and also to WWF and also to the trade union uh, offices and go and see all of these people who have um, <clears throat> a large membership, paying membership, um, and the capacity to mobilise folks for uh, marches and demonstrations and, and talk to them um, about you know what they've what they see as their role uh, in the context of this of this emergency situation that we find ourselves in, you know, um, and I think it's it's a challenge that uh, it's a challenge for any any business or organisation to to think about how we face the future because so so much is uncertain and so many things are, are set to um, fall apart. Right, but the but there are certain groups and and places where you expect to uh, you expect to be able to have a dialogue about what might make a useful contribution, uh, and if you can present some credible research and and the sort of social science and the and some like estimated figures to say, look, we we just think that we need this many people to go out and to do X, uh, then you know you can start to sort of negotiate with them whether they think that they might offer to help to mobilize some of their membership or some of their people. Uh so yeah it's it's um it, it's about kind of trying to go and find people who who will have the conversation with you I suppose about the urgency and and what they might offer in return and we still 
don't have any um we still don't have any guarantees um from the relationship that we've been building with Greenpeace or there's no guarantees that it will work with with any of these other organizations but I surely think it's it's worth a shot you know in terms of kind of trying to get trying to get reach to people who you know are already interested in uh in these issues and who who are already already care about this this topic it's just it's it's such an emergency so we're we're hoping that this this outreach can sort of galvanize uh people that you know uh are interested in in movement and and are and are you know up for up for a bit of social change and uh uh extinction rebellion's website rebellion dot earth not only points out that greenpeace has a business model it also mentions that uh xr extinction rebellion is part of compassionate revolution what is mm-hmm. compassionate revolution because online i saw it described as a corporation so i wanted to know how that uh, model is different from what you see as a business model within greenpeace well so compassionate revolution is set up as um is, as far as I'm aware, uh, set up as a registered non-profit company uh, with a few shareholders who are just basically the people that, that wanted to start this and who've been talking about making movements for a long time. And from setting that up, then uh, Rising Up have been um, working as a decentralised network of activists on, on various direct action um, work. for I think it's for something like around two years. It's longer longer than I've been involved. Um, and, and around spring last year, um, a group of people decided that it would be, it would be the right time to um, come together around one issue rather than, rather than working across many sort of mini campaigns, which is what Rising Up had done before. Um, and so uh, we do have an office at the moment that we're using in London, but that's temporary. Um, everybody is a volunteer, um, so we don't have staff. We're not. Um, we're definitely not an NGO. Um, it's decentralised and uh, therefore able to grow. Um, hopefully, uh, uh, with kind of uh, with with decent pace to keep up with what's um, started already. Um, we do. Uh, some people do claim back some volunteers. Um, living expenses, uh, and then the money that's been donated to us has been has been separated out for spending, basically to pay for actions and um, help people with transport, or you know, uh, so just support the practical kind of logistics of of getting this stuff to getting this stuff to happen, basically. So we don't we're not um, we don't have like a set up space with salaried staff, you know. Uh, which is what all the NGOs do, of course. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's quite a big, quite a big point of difference. Um, we're also quite purpose-driven. So, I think, I think if there comes a point when we all sat down and said, actually, what we're doing isn't working and doesn't work and won't work because we've just seen all of these reasons, we'd, we'd all happily just close it all down and, and and start a new campaign or do something different. You know, it's not a, it's not something that we want to sustain itself for the sake of keeping it alive or for keeping people's salaries paid or something do you know what I mean so it's not it's not a precious uh, it's not a precious thing then um yeah 
uh, Extinction Rebellion demands the government must enact legally binding policy measures to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2025 and to reduce consumption levels, which I think are great goals, but also difficult goals. How much will that drive to zero fossil fuels disrupt society, more, more importantly, the most marginalized in society. Will this policy of zero, uh, net zero emissions lead to worse outcomes for the marginalized and not as bad outcomes for the wealthy? Well, I think that's the reason why we're, uh, the other demand of ours, which is so crucial, is that there's a, there's a system change within the political um, space and that there's a citizens' assembly which will work out, um, you know how how we might uh, enact those those reductions because um, I mean we've just seen what's happened in France. You know the the yellow vest movement was born out of a fuel tax that was supposed to be in the name of the environment. People the people who are doing those who are out on the streets those protests they're not against environmental measures what they're against is that like a fuel tax that just hits the poorest the hardest is not a just way uh, to to enact a, a response to climate change so um so and, and they and they all want um they all want to be able to call a referendum initiated by citizens that's what they sort of uh, that's their kind of de- democratic uh their insertion of sort of you know power for the ordinary person within their democratic system, and um, and that's why we that's why we really want to see this system change so that so that people can be um, ordinary people can be allowed to make these make these uh, very very tough decisions. I mean, it's not going to be easy by any stretch to imagine uh, making these kinds of reductions. Um, but I think uh, w- what we're not doing is um, solutioneering or saying, here's how this is going to happen. So if people want to know from me uh, what happens to everybody's lives in 2025, if we manage to go zero carbon, I'm afraid I just don't, I just don't know. I don't know what that looks like because there's many ways to, to reduce carbon emissions. It's very complex. Um, and I'm not here to decide that on behalf of anybody. I'm just um, part of a movement that aims to create kind of the social conditions, if you like, so that these these things seem to become possible. Because really, the the failure of of humanity to meaningfully um, tackle this problem is is uh, it's completely off the scale. You know, the, for thirty years we've been told to reduce carbon emissions, and they've gone up sixty percent. So, um, so this is a very big problem because we're absolutely you know, we're we're going 100 million miles an hour in the wrong direction, and we seem to get faster. The emissions went up again in 2018 globally. So it's not um, it's not a simplistic thing that you can say. Well, nobody will have a car, and you'll only be able to go on one flight a decade. Or you know, I mean, it's just not for us to sort of try and speculate how this might be achieved. It seems it seems like a big ask, but um, but that's that's why we want a process can help to work that out, if you know what I mean. Yeah. What What do you think is the common thread in the ways that we have approached climate change that have failed? Is Do you see something throughout that entire process that signals to you, this is why these processes, these reactions, these responses to climate change did not work? Um, 
there's all kinds of uh, complicated things to consider about, uh, you know, power structures and systems of oppression and, um, you know, the, the market and the, and the global fossil fuel industry and all of those things. I think um, there's loads of reasons why it's been extremely difficult to imagine tackling it in a meaningful way. But I think one of the interesting things that's come up uh, from our reflection on the on the brief time that we've kind of really launched this uh, movement is that we've accessed a kind of emotional place with people where we where we really talk about the grief of the situation that we're in because it's not just about the fact that the world's going to get hotter and hotter and at a point when it gets too hot like we just can't live on it anymore it's also like mass species extinction um it's also the fact that you know the, the air that we breathe in um london is like harming unborn babies uh because it's so poisonous there's there's a, there's a great grief i think uh in people when they really sort of take the time to look at the environmental devastation that we're that we're witness to and that we're and that we're a part of right that we're sort of part of the problem as well and when you and when you recognize all of that it's it's, it's very it's very difficult and um i think that within my lifetime there's been a real lack of kind of um anybody accessing people's emotions in a meaningful way around around this topic you know um there's been a lot of rational argument there's been a lot of science that gets ignored and um really uh what we've what we've seen as something that's 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 really helped us to um have meaningful conversations about this stuff is is that actually people people feel emotional and um human beings tend to sort of respond to things uh when they feel emotionally moved uh much more than they do if they've given some facts and figures and um a logical <laughs> reason why they ought to care about something um so yeah i think that's possibly that's something that we thought we were all sort of learning uh, from this, which I think, yeah, that's been a factor. I have so many questions for you, and we are limited on time. I'm trying to figure out which ones I should ask. All right, how about this? Uh, <laughs> Extinction Rebellion states, we are now on the brink. If asking the establishment nicely doesn't get them to act, then the only option left is civil disobedience, disrupt the ordinary working of things so that decisions decision makers have to take notice. Does yeah. that mean more confrontation? Because here in the States, from CNN to Fox News, from liberal to conservative, it seems like uh, every media outlet is very opposed to the kinds of confrontational strategies that protesters have been using against right-wing politicians and media personalities. So does uh, Extinction Rebellion embrace a more confrontational, even disruptive view of protesting? Um, I think uh, it's important if you're going to use the kind of language of, of confrontation that you also um, really, really um, uh, push the, the fact that this is leading on, on nonviolent principles only. So when we talk about anything in oppositional kind of language, um, we certainly are... Uh, fiercely nonviolent i i'd say if that's if that's a possible term to use um but yeah i think the the disruptive element of of taking mass uh participation civil disobedience um is crucial and there's uh sort of 
other campaigns that I've worked on where, um, you know, the point of what you're doing is really to create a dilemma. When you put somebody or an institution into a dilemma, they have to act one way or the other. So, um, you know, if you go with a can of spray chalk up to a window of a government building and you spray a message on it, then they have to witness that as criminal damage, then they have to arrest you. Um, it's actually, um, we use a lot of um, chalk pigment spray, which wipes off glass. Uh, even actually when it's dry, you can pretty much wipe it off with a, with a dry um, cloth and it's, and it's gone and you can't see it anymore. So it's not lasting criminal damage, but it, but it counts. So then, they, so then they'll be forced to arrest you, but they're put into a dilemma because really what you've done isn't that bad. Right. So if they if they come if they give you if they come down really heavy on you for doing something so insignificant, they know that also that it'll make them look bad. So you create you open this dilemma space and that means then that you have you've made a space which didn't exist before in a way. Um and so a lot of a lot of this the sort of research has led us to have this uh this concept of, of opening up dilemma uh through action. Um and uh, say similar, say uh, we we went on hunger strike, a bunch of us, and um, you know that's a classic dilemma for your uh, opponent or the you know the, the person or the or the group that you're that you're doing it for the attention of, um, because you 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 make your well-being their responsibility. But actually, they've got no choice in it. You you just declare it, and then that's it. They're in a dilemma because if they don't at least meet and speak with you then you know they're going to look extremely unreasonable so quite often that would then that would then get you a meeting so do you see that it's like you know a, a bit of disruption combined with non-violence is about sort of opening a dilemma so yeah and there's a fascinating discussion at the Extinction Rebellion website. Again, that's, uh, let's see it again, rebellion.earth. A fascinating discussion about uh, fears of uh, eco-fascism as well, and our listeners should definitely check out the website. Again, rebellion.earth to find out more about Extinction Rebellion. We have been speaking with activist and co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Claire Farrell. Claire, I've got one last question for you, and as we do with all of our sure. guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer or our audience might hate your response. Extinction Rebellion quotes Frederick Douglass saying, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or both. Extinction Rebellion adds, we are strictly and avowedly nonviolent, but we can and will use our words and our bodies to disrupt the system that threatens us all. Does power concede anything without violence, especially on something so revolutionary and so challenging to our entire system as challenging our energy sources as well as our, our economics? It's a very good question, um, and I think uh, you know within the current context, we we just don't know. Um, we've we've seen how uh, power has been conceded to nonviolent movements in the past on other topics. This is obviously uh, we're living in different times. The issues are um, are different to the ones that we've uh, that we've got in our history books and in our research. Um, so. 
there's no guarantee that uh, there's no guarantee of success. There's no guarantee that just because the data says, well, you may have a 56% chance of uh, being successful with a non-violent campaign of this certain length at this time of year in the face of this type of a regime or government. It's, uh, you know, you can only take so much um, information. But I, what we do know is that we don't have any time uh, to, to lose. Uh, in trying to uh, make meaningful change in the context of this situation. Um, and so uh, doing this, I think we've got a better chance of success than not doing anything. And to, and the, <laughs> the situation, I, I feel, is so, is so sort of dire. Um, the odds are so stacked against us. I mean, it's, you know, uh, if, if you read the latest data on, on even just the way that the oceans are warming and... Um, we anticipate that there could be a global food crisis within the next decade. You know, it's, it's going to affect our, it's going to affect our children. Uh, the question is really sort of, we've got to this desperate position. Uh, it's it's much better to try to do something and um, than to not do it at all. And so let's see if let's see if power gets conceded. Um, who knows? But if you don't plan to succeed, uh, you certainly won't. So that's. So that's what we've been trying to do. So and, if that answers your question. <laughs> no, it, did, it does. And as the Friday front page of the New York Times reported, the oceans are warming at a, it's a significantly faster pace than any scientist uh, thought. So the problem is becoming more and more dire. And I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing over Extinction Rebellion. We have been speaking with activist and co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Claire Farrell. Claire, thank you so much for being on our show. And we'll be contacting you again in the future as this uh, moves forward because in a couple of weeks in New York City and Washington, D.C., Extinction Rebellion is coming to the United States and it cannot arrive soon enough. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks very much. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, This Is Hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, this is hell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week's this week goes to first the tithing like support of Kilter, Magnificent Me, John H, Brett, and Daniel P. And thanks goes out to John J, Amber, Evar, George, and Taylor. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. We'll need your support more than ever as the Trump administration does what it can to silence dissent. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets one of a limited number of the Lino Cut 2019 calendars. By our very own Puerto Rico correspondent, Dave Buchan. You can see those calendars at davebuchan.wordpress.com. That's Dave, B-U-C-H-E-N. Again, the question from hell is, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2018? Alex, you have all the answers. This week's question from hell, well, because... Joseph D. says, not attending any This Is Hell holiday office parties. Ah, you jerk. And then he also wrote, commenting on more questions from hell than episodes of This Is Hell I've listened to. (laughs) Uh, Bradley R. says, my first public apology. Didn't think I should have said that. (laughs) Ladio says, I apologize for regretting nothing. Jazz D. says, using Facebook. (laughs) Rich G. said, 2019? Damn, I haven't even finished apologizing for 2012 yet. (laughs) 
What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Stevens R. says, I'd like to publicly apologize for publicly apologizing. Lawrence C. says, I am sorry for apologizing at assertiveness training. <laughs> Wait a second, who said that? Uh, Lawrence C. Ari H. says, neoliberalism. Mike M. says, that America has both a Stephen King and a Steve King. <laughs> the Stephen King, the horror author, has yeah. a little sunglasses emoji, and then the other one doesn't. <laughs> Jason B. says, for my part in the Anthropocene. Lisa B. says, I would like to preemptively apologize for the sex scandal I plan on being embroiled in in April. <laughs> that awful thing I'll say about certain people in July and that national monument I'll be accidentally defacing when I put my cigarette out on it in December. Dan K. said, I made America great again. Dennis H. says, for not giving my last kidney to the This Is Hell Patreon. <laughs> Adam A. says, not publicly, but damn, I'm sorry I left Chicago right before Ed Burke got pinched. <laughs> I'd have bought carries around in celebration of that one, let me tell you. Hey, I just want to interrupt that just for a second. Do you know how Ed Burke operated? This is just fascinating to me. So he recused himself from 300 different city council votes. The way, what he would do is he would moderate the debate throughout the entire debate over a city council vote, right? And then... He'd say, okay, we're going to take the vote, and now I'll recuse myself. So he'd be there for the entire debate. He'd shut down people who were against his point of view. Then he would recuse himself. Then the vote would happen. What a piece of crap that No fingerprints is. on anything. That's Jesus. pretty great. He's a uh, YR said, my lack of restaurant experience. I'm sorry, line cooks at my new job. I applied to be a dishwasher and somehow got the prep cook position. <laughs> I've Lisa, fallen into that problem before. Uh, Lisa MP says, I'm sorry I RSVP'd to your thing and never came. Oh. And she said, also, for at least a dozen Irish exits, <laughs> I'm a strong advocate of Irish exit. Oh, you man. Don't, you don't too. owe anyone a goodbye. Uh, I was taught Irish exit. And Michael C. says, I apologize for inventing a time machine and using it only to change my order at Applebee's that one time. <laughs> Amy M. says, I apologize for not campaigning in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, wait. That wasn't me. Nestor <laughs> B. sent us an uh, uh, onion link that said, it's not an easy thing to admit when you're wrong, and that's why I won't do it. He also said, and what the hell is Patreon? <laughs> Chris H. said, my death. Joshua L. said, for my existence and wearing white after Labor Day. What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Scott S. says, the white castle I ate a couple hours ago. <laughs> Mark R. says, for not buying Dave Buchan's 2018 calendar. Uh. Max I., who is sitting behind me, said, nice try, Chuck. <laughs> Fabio L. said, I would like to apologize to Matt Damon and Omar Butts. <laughs> Chris S. says, my posts. Marshall W. said, not contributing more personal thoughts and feelings to the surveillance data broker complex publicly, just letting them vacuum my data privately. Uh. Mika D. says, my taste. <laughs> what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? Mark A. says, voting for Ralph Nader instead of Joseph Lieberman. <laughs> Andrew T. said, I apologize for moving Yemen where Chuck couldn't find it. Damn, Andrew. <laughs> it is cold. Uh, Scott M. said, I deleted all my old tweets already, so 2019 can suck it. Damn, that is the correct answer, Scott. Uh, Repeat oh, Patrick, that one. Patrick, he said, uh, I deleted all my old tweets already, so 2019 can suck it. Yep. Uh, as someone who's deleted his old tweets, I agree with you. Michael N. said, that Hawaii missile false alarm a year ago. My bad. What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019, Evan D.? I'm sorry I waited so long to become a Patreon supporter for This Is Hell, of course, and also public nudity. James W. said, watching professional sports, listening to metal, pretty much everything I enjoy is bad. You should never apologize for public nudity. Joanne C. said, being Canadian. <laughs> Pete V. said, last night. <laughs> Matt P. said, in case she's listening, I'd like to apologize to my two-year-old. I'm sorry, honey, daddy ate the last of your tricks. What are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? 
Ronaldo M said for driving a car, traveling by airplane, and wearing sweatshop-produced clothing, and for all the dead animals that I used to eat. Shane M says, thanks to the butterfly effect, every single thing I've ever done. Via Twitter, we had a couple responses. Bradsky N said, what am I publicly apologizing for in 2019? The hundreds of hours slash pages of well-researched and hilarious podcasts slash articles I've enjoyed without contributing a cent to the producers, Patreons, or PayPals. At least retweets are free. <laughs> Academic Antidote said, my own empirically provable awesomeness. On second thoughts, I'm not apologizing for that. Smiley face emoji. And Rock Taster said, posting a video of myself doing the Tide Pod Challenge blindfolded. My response to the question. Oh, wait, from, couple oh, more, couple more. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Matt H. said, my bald spot. <laughs> Nothing else. John M. said, not having a public to apologize <laughs> to. Alexandra C. said, probably for something my spicy Italian temper made me do. <laughs> What are you apologizing for in 2019? A couple more. Thomas K said for not being a be- as for not being beautiful even when billboards demand that I am. And Anthony S said turning down hosting the Oscars twice. My response to this week's question from hell, what are you publicly apologizing for in 2019? I'm publicly apologizing for how rude, how harsh, how mean I've been to the United States of America. But you can only hear that apology in its entirety by going to patreon.com. Slash this is hell. I also should probably apologize to that guy. I put a neck hold on over the holidays. Uh, so uh, let's see. The ones I like, the responses I like. Let's see. I like Jazz D using Facebook. Lisa B's uh, apology for her future sex scandal was awesome. Amy M not campaigning in the Midwest. Oh, yeah, that wasn't her. That was Hillary Clinton. Mika, Micah D for uh, his taste. I'm going to go with Lisa B.'s future sex scandal. So, Lisa B., you are this week's winner, and you will be getting a limited edition of Dave Buchan's Lino Cut 2019 calendar, which everybody can see at Dave Buchan, B-U-C-H-E-N, dot WordPress, dot com. All right. It's time for something we never did all of last year. It's time for twist-off knowledge. National beer is the only beer that comes in a can with a twist-off cap. Inside that cap is a hieroglyph, a pictograph, a rebus, if you will, that imparts onto you, the soon-to-be drunk drinker of national beer, a little bit of twist-off knowledge. So let's hear it for the great folks over at National, 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 National Beer. beer I can't believe I remember nice that without even reading this beer. This beer. Rosemary Clooney, everybody. All right, let's see if I can figure this one out. Uh, let's see. Bunch of bacon frying in a pan, skull and crossbones, some shelves minus the letter H, the more than sign, a bottle of dye. See, that's an indoor, I believe, uh, what looks like a line of blue flake rock cocaine and a pile of feces. So let's see if I can figure this one out. Bacon frying kills shelves selves more than die in line of coke poop. This is really offensive. 
Okay, the frying bacon, that's cops. Cops kill selves more than die in line of duty. Cops kill themselves more than they die in the line of duty. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the word out about this is hell is to share the show, the entire show, or individual interviews or correspondence reports online. This is hell is a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show, including Pete, Mark M, Doug G, Astrid, Jan, Julie S, Gorilla Gramophonics, Nick, Jesse, Adam, Tom G, Jonathan, Franziskus, Black Rose Book Distro, uh, Chris, Dan Z, Eric, Kimberly, Fergus, Fergus, Jeremy, Dan T, George B, Rob, Tori, Randall, George S, Patricia, Tom V, Ken, Adam, Jeff with one F, Maximilian, Carl, Emma, Ian, Marco, Roman, and thanks everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. We never got around to listener feedback this week. I'm sorry. I wanted to finish up all the listener feedback from last year, but we didn't get around to it. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our content upon your neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. And some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, or better yet, email your local station and tell them your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Office hours are at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Finally, over the holidays, the show got a few really amazing gifts, unsolicited gifts from our listeners, and I wanted to thank some of them. First, from listener Daniel, who unbelievably unbelievably sent us a brand new iPad. So far, all I've done with it is watch sports because other people in the room that I was in didn't want to watch sports because they wanted to watch something on friggin' PBS. But thanks, Daniel. I really appreciate it. And every year, The Office gets a very special gift from Micah in Germany it's the official calendar of the German Bundestag, and I proudly display it every year. It's really awesome, and people always freak out when they see it in the office. And I want to thank Sarah for giving me an edition of American Frontiersman, a fascinating, fascinating magazine. And this week's you know, front page story is Do-It-Yourself Backwoods Living Guide, Trap, Camp, Hunt, and Cook. And I didn't really understand why Sarah was giving this to me until I opened it up and unbelievably and uh, making me come to tears, uh, I was given an on-air sign for our new studio. So thank you very much, Sarah. I love you very much. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. It's Alex Jury. Hey, Alex, do you have anyone booked for next week's show? No, I should probably do that. All right, sir. I'll get to work. Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell. Oh, my God. Now i got to get this all together. Okay. 
I want to thank all of our guests. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to activist and co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Claire Farrell. You can find out more about Extinction Rebellion at rebellion.earth. Thanks to Molly Smith, co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. You can follow Molly on Twitter, at Pasta Chips, where she describes herself as a tired prostitute, communist, and feminist. Thanks to award-winning newspaper reporter Aaron Miguel, who has an article in the new issue of The Baffler titled The Whitest News You Know. You can find that at thebaffler.com. Todd Williams, thanks to him, our correspondent in Budapest, Hungary. Thank you for telling us about the new slave law. Thanks to senior and founding founding editor of N Plus One magazine, Marco Roth, who discussed his article, The Best of a Bad Situation, This is What Extinction Feels Like from the Inside, which appears in Overtime, the winter 2019 edition of N Plus One. Find all the writing at nplusonemag.com. This week's hangover cure is rosemary or some weird hangover recipe called Forget, Forgive Me For I Have Sinned. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell. The only way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show is to sit down in the lotus position, turn your palms towards the sky, focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. <laughs> All right, for Wesley, and thanks, this is Hell, for another great show. This is Eric, and it's now time for Classical and Beyond, which comes at you every Saturday from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Good day to stay in and check out some great classical music.